This is VOCM Open Live. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, February the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with Fonce when you pick up the phone. It gives a shout in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So before I ease us into the Monday show with a couple of interesting sports notes, I'll tell you what has captured the attention of a ton of people who sent me emails over the weekend, along with a YouTube clip of this Verbo ad. Have you seen it? I've only seen it on the clips that people have sent me. So, it's pretty low-brow to begin with. So, what it is, and you know what Verbo is, like Airbnb, it's a vacation rental platform. So, they take an iconic song from this province, Eyes to Buy, and put it over the depiction of some less than uh, responsible accommodations being booked. Now, maybe it's only people here who make the relationship between that song and the images that you see, but here's how one person describes it. It's insensitive, it's pejorative, it's insulting, it's offensive, it's condescending, it's not great. And as I said, it's pretty low-brow, but I tell you what, I got a hundred emails about it over the weekend. You know, add that to the other concerns that we're speaking about on the program, and people are frustrated with that ad, and I get it. It's a terrible piece of advertising. But anyway, uh, good to see the hook back on the ice. Boy, Alex comes back after missing 72 days. They threw him right in the deep end. No easing back in. He's on the first power play unit. Played 18 minutes yesterday. The kid can absolutely fly, and he looks good out there. So looks like the recovery went really well for Alex. Great to see him back on the ice in afternoon games. That's where it's at. Growler's big weekend against one of the top teams in the ECHL, the Greenville Swamp Rabbits. Uh, Growler's took them all three games, six points on the weekend. Terrific. And this is a great story. Maggie Connors and Team Canada come back for the reverse uh, sweep to win the rivalry series against the United States. So they did it last year as well. Lose the first three, win the next four. Yesterday, a drubbing in St. Paul, Minnesota against the States beat them 6-1. to one. So, of course, the big names involved Natalie Spooner, Emma Malte, and Marie-Philippe Poulain, of course. And Maggie Connors are the champs at the rivalry series. Pretty great. Okay, what's this? Oh, it was on this date, 1981, Wayne Gretzky set the single-season record with 153 points. For context, Gretzky has eight of the ten most prolific regular season scoring totals. And last year with Conor McDavid with 153, imagine Gretzky passed that in the middle of February back in 1981. So, the great one. Here's another good one. Madison Square Garden opened stores on this date in 1879, the first indoor rink in North America. And the question is, what about the St. Pons Forum? Good question. The Forum opened in 1923, had natural freezing ice at that time. They moved off to artificial ice in 1956. And the St. Pons Forum was the eighth oldest rink in the world, which is actually pretty cool. All right. Oh, and I saw this one. Pardon me, I didn't see it. I heard it from Brian, and I didn't even know this was the case. Congratulations to the team Newfoundland and Labrador at the Canadian Under-18 National Curling Championships. We win. Gold medal. Fantastic stuff. Team Perry. So the lead is Carter Holden. Uh, the second is Braden Snow. The third is Nicholas Codner. And the fourth, the skipper, is Simon Perry, the coach by Glenn Goss out of the REMAX Center. Congratulations. National title. Nothing to sneeze out there. Good stuff. 
All right, so last week on the program, we mentioned the fact that the people in Gander, a year later, are wondering when there's going to be reinstatement of the obstetrics services. It begins today. So this is good news, but some of the confusion about the length of time it's going to take, so here we go. They say they're going to reinstate all care, including labor and delivery services. At this time, they've just started moving to pediatrics and gynecology services. So they say that the renovations on the unit have been completed. Three or four obstetricians have been hired, a fourth currently completing their orientation. Registered nurses and midwives are already working at the facility, but it's not going to be full reinstatement until early 2025. I guess the good news for folks in the area is that it is going to happen, but there's still a lag of time of the rest of this year and early into next year. And we've been talking a fair bit about virtual care, and there's a lot to be considered or considered there. You know, the cap on appointments of 40 per day. There was a story last week that we discussed with Dr. Todd Young out at Medicuro about how some of these virtual care offerings, they're compiling your personal information, and then they're selling it to other, whether it be pharmaceutical companies or otherwise. You know, the question we do have for the minister here is, if, is there a clause in our contract with Teladoc that tells them they're prohibited from doing exactly this? Because that's not what you're hoping to see when you visit a doctor virtually is that all of a sudden you're bombarded with advertisements uh, and direct targeted marketing because they sold your information like i said to a pharmaceutical company or otherwise and there is some lack of awareness apparently on the province's west coast so says erica parsons director of primary health care in the western zone of the newfoundland and labrador health services is the call volumes for their virtual offering now again it's not ideal for every single person, for every single ailment, but it can be quite helpful for many. And apparently the positive feedback is in place when you talk to people like Dr. Young and or others in the virtual care world. But in, inside the world of the Western Zone, they usually get you connected with a provider within three to five days. So that's a pretty decent turnaround when compared to trying to get in to see your family doctor, if you're lucky enough to have one. But if you want to talk virtual care, and I think that protection of our personal information is pretty important stuff. What do you think? All right. And talking about protecting our personal information. I really don't know how complicated or complex this legislation will be to protect Canadians from what they call online harms. Now, there will be, I think, hopefully robust debate about freedom of expression and then controls online. So who gets to be the arbiter of what's the truth? Now, of course, some obvious disinformation should indeed be just whittled away. But where I think the federal government needs to start is with the social media and the tech giants. So there's been some pledges from some of their leaders, you know, notably the fellow at the top of Mita, Zuckerberg. But what we're seeing is more and more frequent interaction between children and putting forward their complaint formally that they're being extorted, sexually speaking. Then there's the thought of protecting them from uh, some uh, issues and visuals and stories about suicide and eating disorders. So I guess you start there because freedom of expression in the world of political debate is important. Now, some of it is just 100% agenda-driven, some of it is absolutely untrue, but it's hard to just be able to tell people, you can't say this, you can't say that. But we do know that a lie makes its way all the way around the world before the truth gets out of bed. So starting with protecting children, which I don't think is a political issue, it doesn't matter who you support or who you plan on voting for, to protect the kids, pretty important stuff. So how you get this legislation right, and even when you listen to academics in this particular field of interest, 
They're kind of torn about how this should get approached. But if we just start with the basics, let's make sure that children are shielded from things that are harming them. You know, the deep fakes associated with extorting them sexually. And curiously, boys are reporting in much higher numbers than girls in these types of really evil instances online. But that legislation is going to be tricky to get right. But if you want to take it on, we can do it. But I think we can all agree that when we look at the online landscape and the way children are seeing what they're seeing and the unfortunate and sometimes tragic outcomes, let's all just agree that getting that right should be absolutely priority one for many of us. Or for should be for all of us. All right. This story here, we've spoken about it a few times on the program, and I don't know it gets enough real focused attention. The concept of isolation and loneliness. You know, you can be lonely living in a congregate living facility. Like, you can be lonely if you're at, the, say, for instance, long-term care. You can be lonely in your own home. But notably, people are less likely to feel loneliness in their own home versus in some of these uh, settings living with others. The concern that people have is not just the anguish that could be brought to bear by loneliness. It has a distinct impact on your overall health. So the seniors advocate Susan Walsh is talking about it, and I think that's absolutely ideal. But we, I don't think we have a firm understanding of exactly what loneliness means and what loneliness means for your overall health and the structural changes that need to happen. Things like moving towards more age-friendly communities. So like up in Clarenville, they've had that designation quite a long time. And so it's not that you have to do so much arduous uh, tasks. You know, when they say age-friendly, like designing infrastructure, communal walkways, accessible to folks who use walkers, wheelchairs, ensuring older citizens are welcome to participate in social events and or volunteer opportunities, and to target people who may indeed be more prone to loneliness. When it comes to your overall health, I mean, just, just a couple of numbers. Social isola isolation was associated with about a 50% increase of dementia and other serious medical conditions. There's plenty of research out there, some of the health risks uh, alongside. Socialized, uh, social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that might rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical uh, inactivity. Social isolation was associated with about a 50% increase in dementia. Poor social relationships, which are characterized by social isolation or loneliness, was associated with a 29% increase of heart disease and a 32% increase risk of stroke. Loneliness was associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicide. Loneliness among heart failure patients was associated with a nearly four times increased risk of death, 60% increased risk of hospitalization, and a 50% increase in the risk of emergency room visits. So, this is very real. And when you look at the population, seniors are more prone to fall into this position of isolation and of loneliness. Not because I say so, but that's what the medical research looks like. About, we have the highest per capita number of people at uh, 65 plus. Over half of the population in this province is 50 plus. And when you look at the risks of being lonely, here's some interesting numbers. This is based on research from the National Institute on Aging, released last December. Found that 58% of older adults have experienced loneliness, but 41% of Canadians 50 plus are also at risk of it. It's been deemed a global public health concern. And so looking at the structural changes that need to come with understanding this issue, doing something about this issue, because if you just heard what I just read, then obviously it is a massive concern. Now, I said that the numbers show that seniors are more likely to find themselves in uh, uh, some state of loneliness. Maybe we'll get a further expansion because we've got a mental health professional coming on here pretty shortly. Okay, a couple of quick ones. 
So good news that the Association for Allied Health Professionals have reached some sort of collective bargaining agreement with the provincial government. No real details related yet, but when we talk about people doing same or similar jobs for different rates of pay, of course it's a problem. One of the key issues for the allied health professionals was to be heard, to be treated equitably and fairly. One of the said concerns was inside the job evaluation system, which is basically a job description. So we have folks that are represented by allied health that were doing similar or same work and getting paid far less than their counterparts. You know, it's very much like the travel nurse conversation. And then a little step further on that, on the rate of pay issue. So the lecturers union at Memorial University, which teaches about one third of the student body, they've walked away from conciliation. Why? Because they've got a very similar disparity in the rate of pay. So if we've got one third, and they're in a position to strike, and that can happen soon, and maybe not teach at all in the month of March, which would compromise final exams. So this is a big one. If you've got anyone involved at Memorial University, so they make far less, sometimes about half of what their counterparts are making. Same teaching, same responsibility, half the pay. Obviously, they've been without a contract for so long that they are just frustrated to the point where they've walked away from the conciliation. So here's some numbers for your consideration. You could be teaching one of these big lecture halls, right, as a per-course instructor. Have 300 students. The same responsibilities that a professor would have, although you don't have tenure and or that possibility for your PhD in your back pocket, but you're doing the same work. And so here are the rates to pay. Per-course salary for instructors ranges from $5,000 to $5,875 per course. About half what others are making of course people are going to make more when they've got their masters or have their phd but not have to do the exact same thing so if this compromises final exams it's going to be a massive problem because we've seen the complications over the last year or so at memorial university all right so speaking of teachers it's teacher and staff appreciation week inside the k-12 system and then we have a bunch of snow coming as i heard in the weather forecast there's already been a significant amount of time missed recently inside school so we'll see what all that means had an interesting conversation with the pc member for terra nova and he's the uh, opposition leader opposition pardon me critic for industry energy and technology talking about procurement you know it's important to get this right there's always that issue of optics versus reality and who gets government contracts which could be quite lucrative if it's the gravy side of the world in business so you have to have it absolutely competitive and to make sure that even some of the smaller companies are brought into the fold with some in-person presentations or what have you about the process itself but really critically important here is to understand what the definition of local means there's a 10 percent variance allowed for local bidders which is a nice advantage and appropriately so. When asked, I asked Minister Abbott about what constitutes local, and he says, the hope is, not that we will. So the hope is that they'd have to have an actual physical representation here, not just the P.O. box down at Station A, Canada Post, and Canada Post planning on raising the rates. So we've got to make sure that it simply can't be you have a digital presence. You really should have to have people who are living here, working here, paying taxes here to actually constitute what local means. Now, I don't know if that's one, two, five, or ten, but it's got to be more than simply a mailbox, right? Because that's not good enough. Then the thought was it needs to be expanded, you know, to include trades workers, which I think is a fair point being made by Mr. Parrott. But there's also some of the, like, I got taken a task in an email about some of my questions and thoughts on it. And, you know, it's basically locals first. No one's arguing that 
government projects here should absolutely have a keen focus on putting people who live here to work. The question that I asked that got some one person really riled up was about isolation. It's important to not have this as protective or as isolated as province, uh, the province of Quebec. Because we've got a ton of companies here that are doing lots of work around the country. We can't find ourselves in a place where legislation regarding procurement means we've isolated the opportunity for out-of-province companies. Why? Because that might do the exact same to our companies. And there's a huge number of big outfits here employing hundreds of people that do a ton of work out-of-province. So hitting the sweet spot there, important stuff. How are we doing on the telephone there, Fonts? All right. Uh, can't read my own scribbles sometimes. Oh, and then you hear Brian talk about another. These headlines are frustrating. So, buddy gets pulled over. You know, no license, no insurance, failure to report transfer of a vehicle, and $40,000 in outstanding fines. There was a story last week, the headline was $20,000 in outstanding fines. And usually, the immediate reaction is, you get your plate when you get your license and your first vehicle, and you own that plate, and you hold it close to your chest on the back of your rig for the rest of your life. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. All right. In the year of the arts, sad note, hate to end on a sad note, but c'est la vie. Dennis Parker, dead at 78. I mean, here we are in the year of the arts, and the losses are mounting. Rick Boland, Kevin Lewis, and of course others, and Dennis Parker. He was a giant in the music business. He made his way to the province here from Britain in 1971, and he played a huge role in the industry, in the formation of the music canal, which he was at the helm for quite a long time. Blues master. And a lot of my buddies around my age who played with Dennis or inspired by Dennis or mentored by Dennis, are, it's a big number. And I'm sure they're feeling a significant loss. Dennis had been quite ill for a while. I knew Dennis pretty well. He was absolutely the master of that particular genre. Him, Scott Gowdy, and others, right? But Dennis Parker, gone at 78 years of age. Our condolences to his friends and his family were on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line follows there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show to kick off the week. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Perfect way to start a Monday with a correction <laughs> right off the bat. So I read the news story that had to talk about obstetrics returning to Gander, and we mentioned some of the healthcare professionals and the renovations that had been completed. The news story read that it would be uh, opened or re full reinstatement by early 2025. That's not correct. So for folks in and around Gander, it will indeed be open in full early this year. Not 25, but 24. I appreciate the information coming from Adam. Okay, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to our friend, uh, child clinical psychologist. That's Janine Hubbard on line number one. Good morning, Dr. Hubbard. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Well, and a happy, mon and a happy Monday to you. Happy Monday to you, too. Uh, although up a little bit too late watching the Super Bowl, even though it was a great game, but a bit bleary-eyed. But let's get going. <laughs> so... If the federal government in April of 2020 thought it was important to put a uh, an online and uh, via phone service called Wellness Together and Pocket Well, and some 4 million Canadians have used it. It was 24-7. It was free. I've given out the number to Wellness Together countless times on this program. And lo and behold, somebody up along has decided that it's no longer required, which I don't know how they make that calculation, this cost of living issue and we're just post-pandemic or wherever we are. But all of a sudden, it's gone away. When you heard the news, what did you think? Well, certainly I know that we have a number of people who have found it an incredibly useful resource. So um, was really concerned in terms of, 
I guess like many of the resources that were put in place during the pandemic, they were kind of designed as a stopgap emergency measure, which is fine. But if you're going to then remove it, what is replacing it? What is going to continue to meet those needs? Because the needs today are probably looking a little different than they were right back in those early, early days when, quite frankly, uh, you know, most of the mental health clinicians uh, hadn't figured out how to do uh, virtual services. In fact, a lot of them were being deployed to other areas who so not able to provide those services. Uh, a lot of people weren't working, so they didn't have access to things through work. Uh, so a lot of that situation has changed. Um, but at the same time, we also know we have a huge gap in services. So I guess for me, I'd look at the wellness together and wonder, okay, what were the parts of that service that people were continuing to find useful? And what are we doing about replacing them in a different format? If indeed this format, um, you know, was maybe more suitable to uh, COVID-related concerns. Possibly so. And I know you aren't necessarily going to get to speak with the same person, but in your own back of people's minds, continuity of care can indeed include whoever you speak with at Wellness Together. So does that make sense when I make the reference to continuum of care? Because I do think that becomes part of people's own resources. They've heard the number from me or I've given those people the number. They think it's been helpful. And so consequently, even shifting gears to go to another service outlet or another platform might not feel the same. And how you feel about the treatment you're getting goes a long way to your managing your symptoms and or improving or whatever the right phrase is. Oh, no question. And I mean, I think there's two things. I think, well, three things. One, I think the introduction of the 988 suicide helpline um, is perhaps designed to take up some of the percentage of calls that Wellness Together was receiving. Um, now, obviously, that's not going to fit all of the needs that are there. Um, the second thing, and we keep coming across this, is Healthcare uh, funding and programming comes from the provinces, not the federal government. The funding comes from feds, but it's supposed to be delivered provincially. So this is where we keep running into some of these difficulties when they launch a federal program. Um, and it, you know, it kind of gets the hot potato back and forth in terms of some of that funding. And bigger picture, short-term things are super helpful, no question. Emergency lines, warm lines, crisis lines, you name it. Um, but as we've heard repeatedly, ideally, um, continuity of care from the same licensed uh, registered mental health professional to provide whether it's single uh, session service or whether it's long-term service is really ultimately the goal that we're looking for here in the province. To me, it's just a misread of the tea leaves because if anything in this country, whether it be federal or provincial responsibility, expanding access to mental health care seems to be the appropriate path forward. Anything that's taken out of the system at this moment in time seems to fly in the face of the numbers that we used. When I first started this job, it was one in five Canadians with a mental health concern. Now it's one in four. So it just seems wrongheaded to me. Oh, I agree completely, and I think what would be really helpful for anybody who has been using wellness together and finding it useful is what aspects of it are useful and are gaps that aren't currently being provided by our provincial services, and then send that feedback to your politicians. Send that feedback to the Minister of Health, because if there's a gap um, or a particular service that isn't 
uh, being offered. Because again, remembering that it was often single session, crisis oriented work. If we don't have that to substitute, then that's a really important issue that needs to be addressed. If it's more about the resources and some of the apps that were on there, um, that's important to know. Um, so really understanding what specific aspects of the Wellness Together program um, people are finding essential. It'd be interesting to hear from folks who have indeed used the service to give us that type of sure. feedback. But, you know, I, again, so you're taking something away. You and I have had many conversations about the concerns that psychologists would have in this province and the concerns that psychologists would have across the country. We know about wait times to see a psychiatrist. Yep. So when you add it all up, I'm just not so sure that people at Health Canada and or the federal government and or the, even the provincial government have understood the magnitude of the, of the issue. And I think unless you've been there, unless you've been watching either yourself or a loved one struggle and come up against uh, barrier after barrier after barrier, I'm not sure you're going to get it. We have some who do, and then it's a question of but how and um, in what ways. I think there is certainly more of a desire or willpower um, in government than we've ever seen, but it's a question of how how are we going to make this happen? How are we going to make it happen? Million dollar question regardless of what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning while we have you, Janine? Well, I was going to say the good news is great relief for a whole lot of public sector psychologists and their clientele. Um, with the AHP uh, agreement, that means there's going to be a whole lot uh, less uncertainty and stress and less disruption and uh, we won't have to experience a disruption in services for those clients who do see public sector uh, psychologists and social workers and counselors. So I'm very relieved um, on that piece of information that I think is going to be really helpful. And February is Psychology Month, so happy Psychology Month. And the very same to you. Always appreciate your time, Dr. Hubbard. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Daddy. Take good care. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, so if you're someone who has used Wellness Together or PocketWell, it would be helpful to get the exact type of feedback that Dr. Hubbard was talking about because if we can put all those pieces of feedback together, then we can have a much more constructive conversation, maybe with elected officials or folks working as mental health professionals. That's a good idea. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Tom, you're on the air. Hi, Tom. Morning. Morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Best guy today. How about you? Uh, not so bad. Patty, uh, the last time we spoke, uh, I... Uh, we're talking about trying to get some uh, services there at the hub, and I, I mispronounced and screwed up the name of Tom Davis, who's running for council in, in Ward 4. Uh, and I apologize. I sent him a note afterwards. But uh, I just want to say again that ever since then, he's been tremendously supportive of the hub. Man, he's called me several times. He's sent a note to, uh, uh, to Bernie Davis, the environment minister, supporting our project. So... I don't live in Ward 4. I've never met the man, but, uh, you know, I think he's going to be a great uh, a great addition to if the people uh, that Ward uh, support him. So, uh, as I say, I don't work for him. I don't know him. I've never met him, but he, he has been very supportive of the Hub in the, in the, since the last week or so that we've called. So, uh, shout out to him for, for that. Fair enough. Appreciate it. Uh, the, the main reason I'm calling, and, and it's something that's bothered me for a while, and I, and I can't understand it, that's as you know, on your news this morning, uh, you report again that a man was picked up with $40,000 worth of outstanding fines. So where the heck are these people getting the cars to drive? As you know, uh, I'm sure everybody else in the province knows that if I buy a car from a dealer, 
I got to have a driver's license. I, I got to have proof of insurance. Uh, and so I'm not going to, they're not, these people are not getting cars from the dealers. I think where the problem is, is in private sales. Because I listed a vehicle for sale there six, seven months ago. The, the question I would get every time was, how long is left on the license? Uh, so I think that's where the problem is. I think these people are getting the vehicles from private sales. No doubt. And that's where we need to correct it. That's what we need to say that if I'm selling my vehicle, then I have to ensure that the person buying the vehicle from me provides a valid driver's license, provides proof of insurance, and then that's forwarded the motor vehicle registration with the change of ownership. I think that's what needs to be done, and that's a very simple legislative change. Also, you know, if you come to me and say, Tom, can I borrow one of your vehicles? Yeah, no problem. Uh, Daddy, you got a driver's license and insurance? And if I don't ensure that happens, then I should be fine to the point whereby I'll take out a new mortgage to pay for it. And I think that's what will solve the problem of all these people driving around with vehicles, because that's where they're getting them from. They're either borrowing them from people or they're buying them for private sales. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so. putting some of the onus on the seller, fair enough, because we're talking yeah. about protecting the roadways, uh, period. So, yeah. and it's fairly fundamental stuff, right? I mean, proof of insurance yeah. is a piece of paper or an yeah. email or something that yeah. you can verify the source. And proof of registration, of course, many people selling their vehicles will be some registration uh, time left on it. And I don't know how yeah. accurately you could track that particular one, but the insurance, 100%. Absolutely right. Yeah. You know, no, it, it's just crazy. You know, when, when I was in in Europe, uh, I was hit uh, head-on collision with a person uh, who was committing suicide and drove into me. Um, and, of course, did a lot of physical damage to me, yada, 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 yada. But that person did not have uh, valid insurance. And the rule in Germany at the time was that if you didn't have insurance or canceled your insurance... It was the insurance company's responsibility to go get your license plates and turn them into more vehicle registration. And until that was done, the insurance carrier had to provide the insurance. So in that case, the insurance company had to pay for my injuries and things. Uh, and that's something I believe should be done here. I think the insurance companies here would welcome that because, first of all, you're not going to get people driving around with insurance. Uh, you're going to have more people paying for insurance. You're going to employ employ people going out, getting these plates from people. And uh, again, that would solve a lot of the problem because it's just crazy. You know, now with the new system that you have where you don't even get a sticker to put on your vehicle, every single time the police see a vehicle, uh, they got to be able to Google it. So... I think, Tom, I I've asked the uh, police officer about that. I think they have real-time assessment of your license plate, whether or not there's registration associated with it. Apparently, there's a reader specifically in the vehicle that does that. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I did. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, that's what I was told. I, I haven't seen it in action, so I can't picture it in my mind's eye, but I'm told there's a real-time reader in the co in the cruiser. Oh, well, then that... And I, so I apologize to, to people then because I thought this was crazy, man. This is absolutely crazy. Anyway, but that, that was my rant. Uh, the, the final thing I want to say is that we all in our area this weekend got $9,000 bills for the sewer upgrade. So 
Uh, I'm sure that in the next little while I'll be talking to you about that because I think it's absolutely crazy. We're being double-billed because we had to live on lots out here that were half-acre because other than we, if we didn't have half-acre, we couldn't get a septic tank system put in. Uh, and now that they've put in the line for sewer, they assess our property as being the standard of 50 feet frontage or something and all the rest we got to pay a second bill for. So it ends up with the majority of us out here having to pay $9,000 up. That's where I've been hooking on. Then we got to pay a $1,500 hookup fee and pay a contractor. So uh, I've made a few phone calls uh, on the weekend, so I'm sure I'll update you on that situation uh, some other time. And if I'm if I recall correctly, these were bills that nobody were told were coming. So while you were lobbying to have these services <laughs> provided, then all of a sudden, yeah. as opposed to simply getting the same for the same amount of property tax paid, you got a bill that you had no idea was coming, right? Oh, I know, yeah, and, and what's even worse about it is the fact that when Andy Wells was mayor, the federal government gave money to kill brides and ghouls to upgrade the sewer system, and, and Andy took it, and he admitted this, he took it and put it on Camelot Road for all the development there. And he said to all of us, he said, guys, when we get the tax base developed out there, we'll come out to you guys and give you water and sewer. Now, 20 years later, here we go again, the feds just gave $10 more million to this project, for the sewer upgrade because they said you had to do it. You can't put sewage in Shoal Harbor Bay anymore. You have to go through your system that we helped you pay for. And as a result, we finally get the sewer. Uh, we didn't get water. We were told we were getting water. We didn't get water. We still don't know why. But as a result of the construction, I think it was seven homes out here lost their water. And the city had to pay 25000 bucks a pop to give the Martesian wells. So, you know, here was basically $20 million given to the project over the last 20 years, and now they're hitting us all with a $9,000 bill. And overwhelmingly, the people in this area are seniors, some of whom I'm sure, because uh, they, they included in their thing, by the way, guys, uh, we can arrange a mortgage for you if you want to pay for these things. I, I don't know any of us that have mortgages on our properties, so we're certainly not going to go that route. I'll just pay it, of course, because I can pay it, but... Uh, I think this whole thing of double billing us because of the size of our lots is just just absolutely ludicrous. Tom, I appreciate the time this morning. Okay, thank you for taking the call. Pleasure. Talk, talk soon. Okay, bye Take bye. care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, you know, and when you talk about uh, sewage and uh, sewage treatment, the vast majority of the province is not up to the federal regulations. This was a big story some while back, but then it kind of went away. There was even threats made of town managers about non-compliance. And the amount of money it's going to take for every community to be up to those federal regulations, those standards, we're not talking millions. It's into a billion. That's the last estimate that I heard if we're talking about every single uh, sewage treatment facility that's required. Let's go ahead and take a break. We'll get back. All of you are next. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Olive, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, uh, I was calling about the mental health and dementia thing that you were talking about a little while ago. Uh, but I actually grew up in the Ghouls as well, and we really did have a really bad problem with uh, water and sewage when I was growing up. I mean, I'm almost 50, uh, but other sort I'm in there to back up the gentleman who was on earlier. Last. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk to you about the, uh, the dementia and the need for mental health. Okay. With people getting older. 
I'm I'm almost 50. Um, I've been dealing with mental health and addiction most of my life. Um, I've tried every avenue I can, and I can't get anywhere with anything, and I've tried everything, and there's nothing there. And I was listening to the lady that you were talking to just now. Um, I didn't get to write down anything. Is there any number that I wouldn't have that you might have that that you could give me? A, a number for what in particular? Uh, mental health, dementia, uh, get all their loneliness. I, I mean, I live by myself most of the time. And I've always struggled with mental health and addiction and doing the best I can. Um, so I, I don't, I didn't pick up what she was able to offer. If there was something else that I didn't have, because I've been through everything from Channel to Bruce to everybody. And I mean, I, I don't know if there's, a, I didn't pick up what she was laying down, basically. Right. We were talking um, about a national program that was put in place back in April of 2020, which is going away in two days' time. But oh. inside the provincial opportunities to call, I mean, there's a bunch of different uh, programs and services and warm lines out there. But something as fundamental as 811, there are mental health supports available on that mental health crisis line. So that's an easy place to start. Um, I've been on eight one one, um, and and they're good. Don't get me wrong; they're great. Um, I used to be um, with Channel, and they had the warm line, right. but now it's apparently a cold line. I mean, I'm fine with it, um, but it is peer supported. Um, so you know, the people working there are is obviously peer support, so they know what you're dealing with. Um, I have a really close friend of mine that has been blocked from the warm line um, because they didn't want to deal with his issues. Uh, I don't think that's right. Um, and it wasn't me, but it's a close friend of mine, and I don't understand how he can block from the warm line. So um, just help me understand, they, blocked means not allowed to call or they won't take his call? What led up to that? They won't, they won't take the call. What led and to that, do they, you know? Um, well, I mean, he's a little erratic. I mean, you're calling the warm line. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> you're going to be probably upset, or he don't curse. He's not belligerent or anything. Just um, maybe cry a lot, um, emotional, but not threatening or anything. But now he can't even talk to anyone. Uh, and they got them blocked, and we were going the channel, I mean, before they actually shut down, like, before the COVID, we would go, like, three or four times a week and hang out there. And made really good friends, and, uh, and then, you know, when COVID hit, everything went to crap, we know that. <laughs> um, but now it's a warm line, or you have to make an appointment to go in there, and everything's just not very good. And eight one one isn't too bad, um, but I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm just struggling to know where the help is because okay. I've been so far around everything that I, like I I know I'm not stunned. Like I've been around every possible avenue for mental health and addictions, 
in the province, and I cannot get anywhere. With let, it. let me see I if can. I can help you out, Olive. So there okay. are professionals that are called mental health and addictions navigators, a patient navigator. Uh, I've given these numbers out in the past, and I think this could be very helpful. So when you're trying to identify the most appropriate or beneficial place to turn for you individually, I'm going to give you a number now where one of these patient navigators should be really ideally situated to help you. How's that? Perfect. I got a pen here on Okay. Are you ready? Go ahead. Okay. Yep. So uh, this is a local number. Do you live in the St. John's region by chance? Yes. Okay. So it's 709-752-752-7552. Three nine one six, and that's a mental health. Um, that's a mental health and addictions provincial systems navigator line. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> well, we'll just let's just call it patient navigators, because that's what they'll yeah. do. They know the system inside and out. This is what exactly what they do as a profession. So they'll help you walk through. You can give them a bit more information that maybe you wouldn't want to share on the public airwaves, and they'll mm-hmm. try to put you in touch with the right organization, the right person, the right profession. How's that? I really appreciate it. I'll try that one. I don't think I've tried that number yet. Okay, good luck with it. Let me know how it goes. Thank you. You're welcome. You have a great day. You, you too, Olive. <coughs> All right, bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people like Barry Hewitt, who is one of those navigators, and I believe he's in charge of that department. I mean, these are terrific people. Extremely helpful. Uh, let's take a break pretty much on time. When we come back, there's a caller. I think picking up where we were talking about something uh, with regarding a uh, acorn chairlift. There was a caller had an issue. It came up upon a box of tissues and all of a sudden stopped working. He bought it from Eastern Medical Supplies who continue to try to help their clients. They're no longer installing these this product until they get a full-time uh, repair person trained up, which won't happen until September of this year. But we'll see what this caller has to say about the acorn chairlift right after this. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Uh, line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Hello, sir. Hello there. Yes, how are we today? That's kind. How about you? Uh, I was calling about the Acorn chairlift. Are you the gentleman who called initially on this topic? Yes, sir. I'll okay. I'll get back to you. Terrific. And the update is? The update is that I called that number you gave me, yep. and it was from Nova Scotia somewhere. Yep. And they don't service Newfoundland. No, no. The reason we gave you the number is that yeah. maybe they could walk you through the troubleshoot, whether it be to some sort of reset or check the circuit breaker or something. Not that they were going to be able to supply a service technician. No, no, I know that. But uh, anyway, uh, a gentleman called me, and not one of your gentlemen here because they didn't have my phone number. But a gentleman called me, and he knew a guy that worked on those machines. And he said when he gets back to him, he'll get me to go through the thing to get it started up again. And anyway, uh, that was on Saturday, and Saturday evening, Buddy called and told me how to reset it, which didn't work. And then uh, another gentleman from Torbay, he said he knew a bit about him. He phoned me and said he heard that I had trouble with it. He said he'd come up and have a look at it. And he found that there was a wire off in the back. And you couldn't see it, but he had to take the whole thing apart to find the wire off. And he plugged it in, put her back together. Everything is working perfect. Okay, so that's the good news. Uh, 
it's, it's, it's amazing. When you called, the feedback that I got immediately was un unreal. So we had retired electricians, retired elevator repair people willing to do something for you. I forwarded, I think David forwarded a couple of numbers to you. In yes. addition to that, Eastern Medical Supplies also wrote us an email about the status of Acorn chairlifts and certified training for new uh, Starlift uh, technicians and all the rest. They did go on to say, and I just found the email. Uh, we continue to see if I can find. They say that they are indeed not refusing to do a repair, and I have a direct number for the person who's the sales manager and responsible for this issue. If you'd like to speak with the uh, Grant Touchings at Eastern Medical Supplies directly. Yes, I'd like that. I'd appreciate that, sir. Yeah, no problem. So, Mr. Hutchings' direct number is seven zero nine seven zero nine seven five four seven five four seven seven one one seven. Seven four one no one 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 yeah so 709-754-7711. 7711. okay sir I'd appreciate that and I'm gonna call Mr Hutchings because it's a sin that uh, we had to go without for so long even if they just said we'd try to get someone to come down like you you put it over the air and there was lots of people willing to help us and it's it's no good to my wife having to stay upstairs and not being able to get out. Absolutely. Yeah, you it's know, a quality of life product. Well, this is it. And if, he, if they'd only say, if they had only said to me, well, we're sorry, we don't have anyone here now, but we'll try to get someone to drop in to have a look at it. Or even let Lawton's come in. I didn't, it didn't bother me who I paid, you know, what I mean, to get the thing going. But... No, they wouldn't even, they, they're not allowed to touch them. And Lawton's tried their best. They, they asked me, they said, no, we're not allowed to touch Acorn. And that would be a decision made by Acorn themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but they could have helped us out, done something to, to you know, to satisfy us or, or any other person who has one, you know? And that kind of made a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, I, well, hopefully you'll get some better understanding of exactly what's happening here and what Eastern Medical can and cannot do, because they wrote me an email directly uh, about your call. Okay. And I, I was really quite uh, impressed with just how many people uh, so, sent me a note or gave us a call and said, I might be able to help. <laughs> I'm like, terrific, because from the studio, the best I could do was try to help you troubleshoot it over the phone. So, sure. And I appreciate that, and you could thank all the gentlemen that phoned in. I really appreciated it. And when this gentleman told me he knew a guy that worked on him, and he got back to me to troubleshoot it, that's why I didn't call any of those gentlemen after that, see? Yeah, no, all good. As long as you got it sorted out, best kind. I really appreciate your uh, station and you, sir. Thank you very much. Anytime. Stay in touch. Good luck. Will do. Thank right. you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, and generally speaking, that is the result here. There's a topic brought up. People think they can help, whether they have actual legitimate expertise or lived experience, what have you. Because 60 seconds after we hung up speaking with that gentleman, the number of emails and people suggesting X, Y, and Z, and to check the circuit breaker, maybe there's a reset and all these things, it was, it was helpful. Uh, I'm going to save Otto for after the news. Just going to keep going with the issues regarding... The vehicle. I have one listener saying that putting any onus on the seller to require proof of insurance is some sort of liability issue. I'm not really sure I understand the point, but 
Then it's in the world of just how many vehicles are on the road that are really not in good working order. You see them, I see them. It's pretty obvious sometimes about the vehicle might not be up to the standards required for their safety and the safety of the other other motoring public. And so this person has formerly worked at a dealership. Okay, I'll read it because I think this is, you know, in the issue of mandatory inspections. Having worked at a dealership and seeing the condition of some of the vehicles that came through the door, if I were in an accident and not at fault, one of the first things I would ask for are maintenance records. Some would come in for an update to a computer system while the brakes were metal on metal. Not only are they endangering my life, but their own also. Mandatory inspections should be brought back, so says this email writer. While not every year, possibly every two. Currently, you can have a car that's 15 years old, if you're the original owner, having 300,000 kilometers, and it has never had a safety inspection, and she thinks that this is scary. When we brought this up in the past, because I do think there should be some sort of schedule for safety inspections of vehicles, whether it be upon sale or otherwise, and many people, when they're buying used in a private sale, will ask for the big, you know, they'll take it to a garage of their choice for the once-over. But more often than not, when the concept of mandatory inspections is brought up, then people say, no, just another government cash grab. So that's where I guess the proposed schedule for inspections or the frequency of inspections would be important. Because at some stage of the car's life, it probably has outlived its built-in safety features that were came off the assembly line, because you see them as well as I do. You know, there's that reference which includes a curse word to many vehicles that are, that are on the road. You know, then we extend some of those conversations in the winter, you know, about mandatory snow tires. You know, for some providers of insurance, they'll cut you a break if you have uh, snow tires on your vehicle. You see it and I see it. We'll get into the winter season. We all have to adjust our driving habits you know, because of conditions, and then you'll be on the slightest of inclines, the light turns green, the car in front of you struggles mightily to get any traction. Why? Because they've got just worn-out baloney skins for tires. You know, because for many of these winter conditions we experience, all seasons, even if they're so-called winter-rated, just don't cut it. So I don't know about, you know, mandating how people spend their money, but snow tires... There's a conversation. There's certain provinces in the country. It's mandatory. Then if we go to down the inspection road, I think there's a conversation we had there. I mean, we require it for things like uh, school buses, for instance. So for some vehicles out there that if we could identify they're not fit to be on the road unless they were repaired, it's probably good for my safety and yours. But just the cash grab, every time we talk about government mandating something that costs me out of pocket, that will be the immediate reaction of a lot of folks. Quick check-in on the Twitter before we get to the news. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But when we come back, we're going to have a talk about health care and the folks living in 10 City still to this day. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick note on the inspection issue, and this is from a mechanic, and I think this is absolutely spot on. If safety inspections come back, there should be dedicated inspection facilities that don't do the repairs. Not done at a garage that's issuing the slip keeps out the skullduggery. I think that's right. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Otto. You're on the air. Hi, Paddy. Good morning, sir. Welcome back. How are you feeling? Best kind today. Thank you. How about you? Uh, I haven't received that package yet. Paddy, this is the 12th day. You haven't? No. That's been in the mail for a while now. I just put it in the regular mail, so and I yeah. do have my return address on it if something goes wrong or if I shagged up your address, but it's out there. Hopefully you get it soon, Otto. Yeah, probably today, Bobby. Hope so. Had a uh, uh, wife got one of them lips, uh, hydraulic lips. Okay. 
we get trained to bed and get her out to her breakfast and her dinner and her supper. And the only way she get out of bed is with the left day, eh? her sling, eh? Now, now last year, uh, in September, we had a letter, dead effect from, from Eastern Health, Dr. Mitchamore, that she would receive therapy at home once she get out of the hospital, eh? That was in September. Okay. She hasn't received it yet. She hasn't had no therapy. She's supposed to be due for therapy, but we haven't had no A. And this is 2024, February A. How much care was she approved for? Well, her own care, she gets uh, six hours a day. Now, my insurance will pay up to $100 an hour. Therapy and this guy, Therapy Works, he will come for $75 and we got to pay 15 for eight sessions. When she gets home, now she's in the hospital right now, she got six or seven different issues. Eh? So she's a sick woman. I goes down and stays with her all night and comes back at 8 in the morning. So, anyhow, the other morning I went down to merge. I got a bad foot, hey. Eh? So I went down to Merge 3.30, and there's no one there in Merge, only me. No one came out. No one came in. My name wouldn't call 8.30, so I, I came home. Unreal. No one went in. No one came in. Not one soul. And I was the only one there in, in well, after two hours, probably, someone else came, and then the analyst came in. But no one went in and no one came out. Over what stretch of time? From 3.30 in the morning. And I wouldn't go 8.30 when I left. I left 8.30. That's a long time, buddy. That is a long time. No one merge. I just see if the merge is blocked, hey. Probably wait 11 hours or, or whatever. But no one did only me. Yeah. I went to the girl after I said, what's going on? She said, I don't know. I don't know what doctor's doing. Unreal. Yeah, so I guess that begs the question as to how many or if there was the required health care professionals back there. So you say that not even an ambulance came? And still yeah, nobody was called in? an hour. Okay. I was there an hour for an ambulance came. That's two hours. Okay. And like I said, no one came and no one went out. No one went in and no one came out. I was the only one there for two hours, eh? Emergency room wait time. Call eight thirty in the morning. Yeah, one like I we hear the stories. Now, I don't know how many people was inside. I couldn't tell you that. Hard to know. No, that's right. Hey, boy, I went to a couple games there on the weekend. I wasn't to the second game, but the first game, the breakers and the caribou's, eh? Hey. Okay. A Caribou, uh, breakers won four trees. Caribou's up three of one, and they blew it. Yeah, the breakers are tough again this year. Oh, they got good big players, eh? Yeah, they do. All big players, bigger than Caribou, eh? But now Caribou shot him out just three old, three nothing, eh? So he got to play up in Louisville, I think, down the weekend, and then back there for two, eh? Was there a good crowd at the game? Well, the biggest crowd I saw for the winter. Okay, good. I'd say there's a thousand fans or two thousand there. Yeah, and there's crowds. People there from St. John's. I'd say there's eight or ten there women from St. John's. 
their cousin that was playing hockey there, O'Brien, one of the breakers, eh? Okay. So they come in and support him, they. Yeah, we're down three to one, boy, and he came back and won four to three. That's a good result. I mean, unfortunately, for many of the junior and senior games, there's pretty paltry crowd sometimes, which is yeah. unfortunate because the, the yeah. hockey's good. Nice to see the building off then, say. When the players look up and see the big crowd, he plays better. Well, I certainly always appreciate it when there was people in the building when we played, absolutely. Yeah. Are uh, you going to take any game for this? Absolutely, yeah. I'll get a few games in over the course of the winter. I always do. Yeah, well, if you hear what comes in, watch a game, come up. We're on 27, Richmond Road, in New Paradise, King's Haven. If I'm in the neighborhood, Otto, I'll give you a knock. Yes, drop in. Okay, I appreciate so the invite. Drop drink, whatever. <laughs> I appreciate okay, it, Otto. Yeah, I'd like to meet you, buddy. Likewise. Yeah, you're doing a good job. I appreciate the time and the call. Thanks for the kind words, Otto. Stay in touch. Okay, buddy. Hey, man. All the best. All right, there we go. Good stuff. Uh, let's keep rolling. Line number two. Jason, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Good, boy. Good. Uh, just calling about some uh, stuff I got on the go with uh, our health department. Um, way back in 2012, I got a bunch of teeth knocked out. And... Basically, it's been dogging me since then. Um, lots of infections and whatnot that I've been dealing with. And I've recently, well, in the last three years, reached out to MCP. Um, the chief dentist used to be Dr. Williams to try and get help to get this dealt with. And what spurred that was a major infection that I had to get, drive myself to emergency at like three in the morning. The whole side of my face was blown right up and I had to go on heavy duty antibiotics. Um, I'm sure most of us are familiar with stuff like septicemia and how dangerous stuff like this is so close to the brain. Um, I keep getting turned down from any kind of help. I don't have medical insurance or dental insurance to cover anything like it all extractions and set of teeth to go in my face. Um, when I spoke with Dr. Williams, he told me that in order to qualify for the licensing in adult dental program, I need comorbidities like uncontrollable diabetes or heart disease. Now, it just so happens March of last year, I had a 90% NSTEMI heart attack and due to heart disease. So just, it's it's a bit bit of overwhelming to 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 think about all this going down major infections and a heart attack um they keep saying that because i went to a regular dentist which is what i could afford as a full-time student to get this done so i didn't have to worry about possible septicemia any more infections dogging me um that i didn't qualify for for the adult dental program side of things. And the other side is people who are on welfare. Uh, I can't remember the, the name of that program now offhand, but I didn't qualify for that one either. Um, and this all on the heels, we call you today, this is on the heels of the health board coming out saying that they just increased how much money they could throw at dentures for people because of people's oral health and mental well-being. And sorry, but it feels like 
separate mine. Um, it's quite a shocking story to tell. Anybody I've told so far, is, their double-take reaction has become a classic. And just recently, I've been going through John Hagee's office, and his secretary got back with a letter from Minister Osborne's office saying that they once again spoke with Dr. Zwicker, and her and the board stand fast by their decision, and Mr. Osborne is going to respect her decision. So we're not talking about legislation here. We're talking about policy, which is why I've been trying to get Minister Osborne to take the helm and deal with this directly, because this isn't law. I, you guys came out with an article last year, I think it was. Jim Din discovered there was $2 million didn't get spent from that program between 2022 and 2023. Nobody will give you an answer if that's accurate and if it is, what happened to the money? Um, again, I didn't know if I was going to file an A-tip to figure out if that was actually true before I talked to you guys, because this is the point I'm at now. I'm just getting completely rejected now from the minister's office, and it's based on administrative assistants and non-elected officials who are making this decision based on policy. So we're talking about the Newfoundland and Labrador Dental Health Plan, right? Yeah. This okay. This doesn't have anything to do with the national one. Uh, that's Obviously, that's not for someone like me yet. Um, but I, I, I don't think they're going to be looking at retroactive coverage anyway. So I've been trying to get MCP to help me out. I'm not talking about any major amount of money. It's like 6500 bucks is pretty sure that's what it cost me around that for all the extractions and for the dentures. And I mean, the dentist took what's called a pan, which is basically a panorama of your whole mouth to get the whole picture to see what, what we need to do. And he actually did a letter that I submitted to MCP, Dr. Zwicker, who's the chief dentist now, and also to Minister Osborne's office. And Literally, when I was at one appointment to get the extractions done, this is a little gross, but he picked up one of my teeth that he had just pulled by the infection at the root and jiggled it in the uh, in the tweezers. My apologies to anybody listening, but I mean, it's what I had to go through to to get this done, and it's what I was dealing with. Um, two other teeth had infections inside them, which blew my mind. Um, that was what I was living with for a decade, more than a decade. And I don't qualify. I, I can't believe that. Yeah, so there's for adults, there's three different programs. The basic adult dental program, that's pretty basic services. There's a low-income access program that's involved. There's an income support program. And, of course, with the national program, you will indeed get some coverage. Uh, how old are you? I'm 42. Yeah, so you're going to be that last batch that's captured by the na the national plan, and that won't be uh, all the catching. The catchment won't happen until the end of this year, early in 2025, because at this moment in time, we know that we're just seeing the seniors age 72 to 76. Now their portals have opened this month. Then next mm -hmm. month, they move to 70 to 71. And then in May, it's 65 to 69. Then as folks with the uh, disability tax credit certificate in June, also in June, children under the age of 18, and the rest of the 9 million supposed Canadians that are going to be eligible for this program, not till the end of the year, at least. Yeah, no, I'm well up on that. Believe me, I was uh, I was actually talking to the NDP about 
maybe they could look at it from a case-by-case basis right from the get-go because there's some people out there dealing with a, a ton of stuff that's, you know, oral health and mental well-being, <laughs> and they're being they're let, being allowed to fall through the cracks up to now. Um, so the only reason that the big one that I found that they're, they're, they seem to be harping on is that I didn't go to a dental surgeon in, like, a dental surgeon's office, which is geared up a lot differently than, like, a regular dentist, or I didn't go to a hospital and tie up facilities at a hospital. I went on my own. It's what I could afford, too, to, mind you, regular dentist. Uh, there's no way I was affording a dental surgeon based on having to take part of my student loan to do this. I couldn't allow, you know, the risk of septicemia any further after that explosive infection blew up the side of my face. I wasn't doing it anymore. I couldn't risk that. I understand. Uh, As someone who, even when I was young, first got one of my front teeth knocked out, I've had issues with my teeth over the years, so I completely understand where you're coming from. It can be debilitating, uh, poor dental health. Uh, I appreciate the time, Jason. Anything else you'd like to offer before I have to take a break? Uh, To the last fellow you had on the... I, I know exactly where he's coming from. I lost my godfather. Uh, we brushed him to hospital, and there was nobody there to take care of him. And the lack of oxygen cost him his life. And it's a rampant problem, and my heart goes out to him. My apologies that that had to happen. Um, but, yeah, I understand where he's coming from. Me too. We hear an awful lot of those types of stories here at this show. Uh, Jason, after the break I go, I wish you well. Stay in touch. You too. Thanks, sir. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and uh, take a break. Nick is next to talk about auto insurance. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Nick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I heard your caller talking about uh, insurance cards and how over in Germany and stuff, you know, with the insurance. Uh, right now, there's a company... Uh, well, right now we have what's called paper insurance cards, which basically, you know, you get that at the beginning of your uh, policy and you pay either a down payment or you pay it in full, whatever you choose to do. And, you know, if someone cancels in between, uh, uh, no one knows the difference. The police don't know. Uh, the driver that's been hit in the car don't know until they find out to make a claim. This company in uh, Vancouver called Phoebe. They're going all over Europe right now, and they're actually digitalizing insurance cards with real-time AI data. And uh, this company is basically uh, started off with one insurance company over in Europe, over in Germany. And now they have the six of the top big insurance companies going across Europe as their uh, clients uh, supplying digital cards for all the people that, you know, that hold a car and a license and so forth. And... You know, maybe Sarah Studley can uh, push something in place with something like this. Uh, you know, have the insurance companies like Intact and all those, so forth. Uh, you know, use a company like this. This is a Canadian company, uh, a digital insurance card, which is real time that you show on a, you're in your digital wallet on your phone. Um, that would be a bad idea. Maybe. Uh, just a quick question. So if I have a paper proof of insurance that I have in my glove box, what would be the difference between that and the digital card? Because my expiration date would be on the piece of paper. So how exactly does this work? Do you happen to okay. know? If you uh, if you get an insurance card, yeah. say you went in on September 1st and you purchased your insurance, and you get your insurance card, it's good until 
2025. Oh, and then I cancel it. Okay. Cancels in December. Right. Right? Yeah. So December to September, you got no insurance, but yet you still got insurance care. That's right. It just popped in my head while you were answering. Yeah. So with the digital wallets, uh, the digital cards, which go into what's called a digital wallet, uh, basically what happens there is that you get pulled in for a ticket or uh, just a random check. You know, over in Europe uh, right now, they're doing it, and it's been a success, apparently. Uh, the rates of uh, non-assured drivers have been dropped drastically, uh, from what I've been told. And basically what's going on is that as soon as you pop over, you just push up your wallet, and up comes your insurance card. And your insurance companies, if you cancel, they automatically, in real time, cancel that card. So, I mean, right now, uh, other issues, like I've heard you talk about DUIs and all this stuff, I mean, uh, you know, right now in the process, what's actually happening out there is that, uh, from what I've been told, uh, that some cars are going to start being soon built with in their um, software with what's called a digital wallet. And in this digital wallet, you won't be able to start the car if you can't blow uh, for DUI. Yeah, there's already some devices that can yeah. be applied. You know, in Alberta, for instance, they've got that, for all intents and purposes, a breathalyzer, an engine lock that unless you pass the breath test, then you can't start the car, period. I think some of the auto manufacturers themselves are working towards technology that could be actually just simply part of the car, not something that the RCMP make you install, whether it be a touchpad that can measure blood alcohol content based on your sweat, whether that be a little thumb uh, spot on the dashboard or it's on the steering wheel. There's also some technology is apparently just by uh, uh, analyzing your breath, even as you simply breathe, as you sit in the driver's seat of the car, to require uh, under the legal blood alcohol level of 0.8%. So there's stuff out there, I think, in the works, and rightfully so, because it's a huge problem. Yeah, well, soon there's going to be vehicles that will start with wallets, and uh, those who don't have a license won't be able to start the vehicles. That's what they're coming out with. So basically, you can't... uh, I guess they're going to call it some type of biometrics or something like that. But that's actually coming out in Europe that you if you don't have a license, you can't start that car. So. Yeah, and similar into things like uh, engine immobilizers and other anti-theft protections that the manufacturers should express more responsibility because they're the ones that install the security features. They're the ones that should be able to upgrade and protect the software because most of what your car does is operated by a computer. So that's part of how people are seeing as many cars as they do. It's about 90000 a year here in Canada, which is an extraordinary number. Cost the insurance industry in excess of a billion dollars a year. And, of course, they spread that around to me and you as uh, premium payers so there's more they can do on that front too and I, I suppose if this is going to become more and more of an interesting uh, or pardon me a possibility for the digital wallet to be responsible for starting your vehicle then that's going to come with its own hackability concern as well I would imagine so anyway we'll yeah. see I'm going to look up it. so is Foby simply F-O-B-I F-O-B-I okay it's an AI company yeah Foby AI and it's um it's a publicly traded company, and it's based out of Vancouver, and the owner's Rob Anson. And I tell you, they've got some stuff on the go. They do the Oscars every year for uh, digital wallets, for uh, security passes and security clearances. They even do the NASDAQ, you know, for uh, high-tech security. You know, I guess instead of having to issue cards, people just put their ID passes and such on their phones, and they just scam through the phone. I'm going to have a little look around at this now. I'm intrigued, and I appreciate you bringing it up on the show, Nick. And one other thing is, sure. uh, since we went uh, with no-fault insurance, which was sprung out of me when I asked my insurance, uh, when I had a car accident in one of my vehicles, 
I didn't even know we were in no-fault insurance until they told us. How much money do people actually save? Because I only saved 100 bucks, but I lost a lot of rights, <laughs> you know, in regards to, uh, you know, if you get injured in a car and stuff, you know. It's just, like, to give you, to sum it up, I had more trouble with my own insurance company than I did with the, the person that struck me of getting my vehicle uh, fixed and uh, getting compensated for my vehicle damages. Uh, the sad thing about it was uh, I wasn't even at fault. The other person was 100, uh, deemed 100%. And, uh, yeah, I've had more trouble with my own insurance company than I did with the person that hit me. I'd like to see what other people think about how much money they saved. Mine only shows 100 bucks, and I don't think it was worth the loss of benefits. So, No-fault insurance is a confusing issue for most people because people, when they hear it, because the phrase seems fairly self-descriptive, is that no one's ever held at fault, which is simply not the case. It simply means, it talks about the process for handling an insurance claim. So there's always going to be someone partially or wholly responsible for a collision. So no fault doesn't mean that there is no fault. And you're right. You know, so inside that world, the savings question is a really good one, Nick. And, you know, unless you have something that's called accident uh, forgiveness, which you can actually purchase, then your premiums are going up regardless of the fault or no-fault insurance policies that are in place. So fault determination rules are kind of confusing, period, but that's a good point that you bring forward. And the examination of cost savings versus the frustration and the time and the aggravation for saving 100 bucks, fair ball. Well, my broker told me that this created a lot of trouble for them as well because uh, what was going on was that, say, if you and I got in a car accident, I was at fault 100%. Uh, you went to go renew your insurance. It show up on your insurance, up on your uh, abstract as well that you had an accident. Then you got to go get a letter from a motor vehicle stating that you weren't at fault for that accident. So then you got to go through all that process yourself. Uh, and he said that was nothing but a nightmare for them because they had to get these letters for the, uh, from these people and they had quotes putting them in as uh, they were at fault for the accident. I'll follow up with, uh, I've got buddies in the insurance game. They listen to the show. Guaranteed I'll get a couple of reaction notes here this morning to the issues <laughs> that you bring forward. Nick, I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. No problem. Take care. Congrats to PC, by the way. <laughs> Say what? Congrats to the Kansas City Chiefs. It was a pretty exciting game. I was up a bit too late, but anyway, there you go. That's three in the past five years for the Chiefs. I think we can start calling them a dynasty. No problem. See you later. Okay, Nick. Bye-bye. Yeah, it was a pretty good game. I mean, 25-22 in overtime. Mahomes wins his uh, third Super Bowl MVP. Chiefs look pretty solid. Weren't that great throughout the regular season. All of a sudden, world beaters yet again. Halftime show, eh, kind of underwhelming. Anyway, let's take a break. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. I want to talk about uh, some comments Trump made on the weekend at a rally in South Carolina regarding NATO. Yeah, I really dislike talking about Donald Trump, but let's go. Um, he's of the opinion that if uh, the members of NATO don't pay their fair share, uh, that the United States will not come to their assistance if they're attacked by Russia. And also he said that he would actually encourage Russia to attack them. 
And then, as usual, his most staunch supporters rushed to his to his aid. Well, this is what he means, and that's what he means. I mean, he said what he said. And saying out loud that he would encourage, in this case, Russia, to do as they see fit is remarkable. I mean, NATO as a defensive treaty, I mean, even just add to it the Budapest Memorandum, which deals with issues just like this, is extraordinary to me. So, a couple of things, and then I'll let you say whatever you want to say. You know, I don't really understand if he understands how NATO works anyway, because he keeps saying to pay your fair share to NATO. We don't pay NATO. That's just not how that works. The commitment is for countries, the 30-member nations, to spend 2% of their GDP on national defense. And so we don't have, we're not at that stage. I think we're about 1.2 or 1.3% of GDP in our, on our military. I think that expands when we factor in some uh, jet purchases in the future, obviously. But to say that you're not going to come to the defense of your allies is remarkable. And people are okay with it. It's something else. Yeah, uh, NATO is, uh, just what it says, it's a North Atlantic Treaty Organization, so the member states are uh, bound by treaty. That's a treaty uh, obligation to come to the aid of a member state that's under attack under Article 5 of the NATO Charter, right? It's um, not only puzzling, obviously, but uh, very disturbing because you're sending a a message to uh, the cockroach that's occupying the Kremlin and the other cockroach that in Beijing, because these two countries now, Russia and China, are allied when it comes to uh, the little uh, excursion into Ukraine. Um, you're going to start World War Three, and I'm not running around with my hair on, my, on fire here, or you know that I think the sky is falling. This is exactly how World War Two started. You had uh, one uh, sovereign nation in Europe invading another sovereign nation. And uh, Putin's already done that with Ukraine. So now Trump is signaling if he becomes uh, president in January of 2025, that Poland, the Baltics, uh, Romania, Hungary, other countries, they're all open season now. And they all just fly west to of uh, Ukraine's border. It's, it's just remarkable that uh, he's given... Uh, Given the signal, the signal to Putin to to go in there, and the United States is not going to lift a finger. And he would actually encourage Russia to do that, based on, as you say, an erroneous perception of NATO and how it works and the financial uh, underpinnings that uh, that uh, run NATO. You know how we all contribute uh, our two percent as a benchmark, as a minimum amount of our GDP. That's that's what's set by NATO. But that's, that is, uh, as you correctly point out, that's not how NATO works. It's an international treaty uh, organization, uh, military and political, that uh, is grounded in international law. And uh, Trump fails to, uh, I don't know if he takes into account or not, but he fails to understand that uh, Article 5 was invoked for the first time in NATO, on September 11th, when the United States was attacked. So our country and others, uh, members of NATO, and even members that, uh, even countries that weren't members of NATO, Ukraine, one of them, you know, sent troops into Afghanistan to, uh, to fight. Well, and, you know, 
for further historical context, one of the defenses that Ukraine had years ago was that they were nuclear capable. And I think it was during the Clinton presidency, they were encouraged to uh, disarm, and they did, with the guarantee that protection would be offered by the United States. And yeah. also walking away from that, which is it's wild. The Americans, in 2022, I think it's the last time I saw numbers, they spent... $877 billion on the military. And of course, it's an industrial complex as part of their economy in the United States. The Americans spend more than the next eight best-funded militaries in the world combined. Even China, the largest military in the world, certainly Army, uh, they spent just shy of $300 billion. In this country, we're in and around $26, $27 billion, of which the, the, we've been told they're going to slash a billion dollars of spending. So we're heading in the wrong direction if we're trying to you know, live up to our commitment of 2%. I do think that there needs to be an expansion of what constitutes military spending. You know, for instance, uh, protection of vital services like the electric grid and water treatment facilities and government uh, computers because we're digitizing so much. I think that's actually part of national security these days. Maybe the definition needs to change uh, because it's not all fought in the trenches uh, like it was. So I think there's a lot to this story. But it, it's amazing how many people just think that that's not a problem. They have no issue with it whatsoever, what he said about NATO. <laughs> like, like I, I, I really don't understand. The, the reason that the United States and Canada... I, I guess, you know, uh, you know his, his comments on... Um, uh, NATO and uh, the the people who don't pay their fair share, according to him, that would apply to us, as you said, because we don't pay two two percent of our GDP. So if the Russians um, were to come over the uh, North Pole and uh, put troops on the ground in Canadian Arctic ter uh, territory, sovereign territory belong to this country, he'd be okay with that. Beyond okay, go, go right he would encourage it. Not my yeah. not my words, his words. Right, and uh, so now you know this would extend to not only NATO and our our membership in NATO and the United States membership in NATO, but what about our what about our agreement we have with NORAD? NORAD is the only bilateral uh, defense uh, a treaty uh, in the world between Canada and the United States. You know, we have a continental uh, security perimeter set up between Canada and the United States. So. Would he take that position too? That NORAD, uh, the United States is going to pull out of NORAD, or it's not going to. I have no idea. Come, come to the aid of Canada if, if the Russians send over long-range bombers off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. The Americans are not going to help us out. That the Russians could just come in here and do whatever the hell they want, because that that appears to be what he's saying, right? Put it this way, for those out there who are saying, you know, oh, knock it off, Donald Trump, he should be reelected. Let's just say, if we spend 2% on, if we spend 1.99% of GDP on the military and constitute, that constitutes no protection from our most important ally and largest trading partner and the longest unmilitarized border in the world, if that means you're not going to come to our aid, because you can't, you can't defend yourself as a country with the geographical issues and when we talk about the Northwest Passage, if we spent 1.99, we couldn't defend ourselves anyway, so we'll still be reliant on our allies. And so if one of them is not going to be there, if and when needed, I don't know how that's not a problem for everybody. I really just don't understand it. I do know that the political spectrum has become incredibly polarized and people are staunch in their opinion or belief of one politician or another when I can't, I can't say this often enough. Whoever you support, 
they do not have all the answers. They don't have all the solutions. They're not all perfect. They're not all beyond reproach, right? That's just the nature of the beast when we talk about politicians, political parties, and political policy. So, anyway, final thoughts to you, Colin, before I have to go. Oh, what, you know, someone, what a listener wants me to ask you this. Did you watch the so-called Putin interview? Uh, I got bits and pieces of it. Yeah, I only saw clips on social media. Yeah, Tucker Carlson makes me sick. You know? He's got a huge following. That's the, only way, that's the only way that I can say it without being permanently banned from public airwaves. <laughs> uh, final thoughts before I do have to get to the break. NATO is a... Uh, one of the main pillars of NATO is its uh, deterrence. Its power to deter Russia, China, and other malevolent state actors from aggression. Make no mistake, Putin is in Ukraine. If he were to take that whole country, he's right on the border with Poland. He knows as of right now that the current president of the United States is uh, steadfastly resolute in maintaining NATO and, and expanding it. Uh, that border between Poland and Ukraine is is the border uh, that decides whether we go into World War III or not. Ugh. If Putin were to go into if Putin were to go into Poland or any of the other NATO countries as of right now, that automatically triggers Article Five. We're into it. We're obligated to get to go over there and defend those countries. It's deterrence. It's a defensive uh, alliance. Uh, yep. I appreciate it, Colin. Thanks for the call. Cheers. Take care. Bye bye. Bye now. And I saw out of the corner of my eye, you know, an email floating in explaining and or defending Trump's position on this one. But don't we think, to a man, to a woman, that NATO is critically important as a medium to small power that Canada is? And there will be, inevitably. I don't know, I'm not talking about armed conflict, but there will absolutely be some form of conflict in the Arctic. I mean, Russia has made their... Their wants and desires, well known. So this is not hyperbole for the sake of. We're not trying to sensationalize an issue because I would imagine, like most listeners to the program this morning, nobody wants to see any of that kind of trouble come to our shores. But NATO's important. Isn't it? Let's take a break. Graham, you're next to talk about the recreational food fishery. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Graham, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing grand. How about you? Quite the football game last night. A little late, but anyway, it's a, it was a surprise comeback, but he's done it before. So I was cheering for the Niners. <laughs> I was too. <laughs> yeah. uh, Patty, I wanted to call in about the recreational uh, food fishery uh, petition and kind of update everybody uh, on it. And uh, as of this morning, we have over 2,000 signatories to uh, to the petition. So it's picking up steam, and uh, I noticed it picked up enough steam that uh, that the uh, FFAWU uh, filed a press release on Friday, uh, calling uh, calling for stricter monitoring and enforcement of uh, removals from the ocean for the fishery. So, uh, you know, one of the concerns that we have is that, uh, you know, the fact is that uh, I'm an environmentalist, as you know. Um, I don't want to destroy the ocean. Uh, the other issue is really uh, that how much fish is actually destroyed by various fisheries in the province, like saners and, uh, you know, uh, gillnets, 
or non-selective and uh, and really have a big impact, a lot more, and really not monitor very much because, uh, you know, when you get saners taking the sample for Caitlin, in that, in that seine, there's all kinds of fish in there, salmon, cod, everything in there. So, uh, you know, when they, uh, when they talk about conservation of the resource, uh, I think it's a bit hypocritical considering that, uh, you know, they're still promoting gill nets and, and saners that, uh, you know, that, that sample, for example, their first take, if they don't get 70% of, of female capelin in a seine, then they dump it. Yeah, so, now uh, a gill net, you know, if used correctly and uh, timely, can be effective conservation-wise and for catch rate issues. So I'm curious as to what numbers they're, they're using. So if we're talking about expansion from 39 days to somewhere in the neighborhood of 90, I can't remember the exact tally that you're promoting in your petition, is yeah. inside the 39 number. You know, the number that I've heard repeatedly is that the recreational food fishery extraction is about 1% or less than the total amount of cod taken out of the water. So, pretty insignificant. Now, if I'm representing commercial harvesters and the investment they have in their enterprises, of course, the FAW are careful to say they're not against people putting food in the freezer, if I remember the phrase correctly, but they're yeah. talking about the monitoring, reporting, or what have you. So, let's just say it moves to 80 days. What's the number that they would be considering here. So that would make it, well, 1.2 or 1.3 or something. So I'd just like to know a bit more about it. They do talk about some of the gray area or the confusion or the uncertainty of DFO science, but we've got to have some sort of number to consider. Now, what people don't want to see happen is some sort of uh, tag system or a book that you have to fill out to report your catch. But if we're going to actually get down to the brass tacks and have this type of discussion and or debate, maybe, just maybe, just for the sake of one season, and I know this is a bit of a pain in the neck, but for the sake of one season, if there was free tags and you could go out and get your 15 a day, if that's what you're into and you got the time on your hands, just so we have an accurate number. Because then the debate actually has some context as opposed to uncertainty. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, we've been, we've been calling for tags for years uh, if they're going to do that or licenses like they do in B.C., uh, and you have to keep a log, you know, of what you caught that day and you're allowed to, you know, you're allowed to salmon or to halibut or, uh, you know, crab pot and a shrimp pot. You know, we're not able to do any of that that they can do in British Columbian waters. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, the percentage of, of fish retained uh, by recreational food fisheries uh, is, uh, is, is insignificant in terms of the total allowable catch. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to have some numbers. And I'm not saying that we absolutely should have logbooks or tag system or tags, but because it's a pain in the neck, and as someone who does go out, I don't necessarily want to have to go through that rigmarole. But if we're going to have some sort of legitimate debate, then without numbers, we're just guessing. And guessing generally leads to yep. poor outcomes. Yep, I totally agree. And uh, I know today that, uh, you know, we're over 2,000 uh, petitioners today. And on the question of the day at VOCM, um, which is about the recreational food fishery, and encourage people to get in and let their voices be heard on both of those issues, uh, that they're up to 79% for uh, the extended recreational fishery. Yeah, so... The petition's there, and if people are so inclined, you simply go to ourcommons.ca, and you can search it out, whether it be with keywords and or 4781. Yep. Yep. Not a problem, Patty, and thank you very much for your time.
And uh, we look forward to people speaking up. We've got two more, a little over two more weeks to... Uh, to kind of get our numbers hopefully up to 5,000 if we can. Just before we run out of time here, so you've got another couple of weeks-ish. Is that a timeline that is mandated by the petition process itself, or is that an arbitrary date that you and others selected? That's the, that's the well, you can do 30, 60, or 90 days, I think, but we selected 30 days because it's important that we, we, get, uh, we get this in the House of Commons and uh, and uh, as you know, most of the meetings that take place for groundfish uh, allocations for the year usually take place in March. So we're hoping that we can get that petition uh, put in Parliament and uh, and ask the Minister of Fisheries to uh, to make some changes and uh, allow not only just uh, ordinary people to be able to get their fish when they can uh, during the uh, during the better weather months, but also to allow for tourists to be able to retain a few fish when they're out visiting the province. Yeah, and as government uh, not noted for moving quickly on virtually anything, now there are some examples in the recent past where they did move quickly, but even if some of these issues are accepted and or a compromise can be found, I wonder could it be done in time for this upcoming season of the recreation food fishery? I'm not sure. Now we're still waiting for news from GFO on the commercial stock for Northern Cod. Still a lot left to be understood on that front. We've got the redfish numbers, which are disappointing. Uh, speaking on behalf of the harvesters on the southwest uh, south coast west coast and up the northern peninsula so anyway yeah yeah and the other thing is important too is that uh, there are over four years of fishermen's uh, logs that haven't been analyzed the data hasn't been analyzed and that's uh, that's something that i learned recently uh, that all this data was there and and why haven't they analyzed it uh, and you know a number of years that they didn't actually get the surveys done also because of ship issues or whatever but uh, no, it's important that we do get the uh, it's important that we do get the numbers, and I, I totally agree with that. And then, at least uh, in terms of sustainability and, and conservation, make sure that the uh, that the stock is is improving, because every day that improves obviously improves the fisheries uh, the fishers' ability to be able to make a living. Yeah, and I'll add to uh, data one more facet would be this ongoing. I don't know what it is about whether or not seals are a prime predator of the cod stock. I mean, even when they go down the process of trying to say, put in a, uh, you know, catch a, a couple of hundred seals and we're examining the stomach content. The last time they did it, the fellows who were actually involved in harvesting those seals were complaining right away because the FO wasn't coming out in a timely fashion to assess the stomach contents. So consequently, yeah. while digestion continues, and by the time they get to it, much of the stomach content is indistinguishable. So consequently, we learned nothing, except that there's a yeah. couple of hundred seals that have been taken, and they end up where? Who knows where? Probably in the landfill. Yeah. You know, no doubt, no doubt that that's a, that's an issue in terms of make, making sure that we have the scientific knowledge of what the impacts are. You know, of the of the seal, uh, the seal population on the province, and uh, you know, at least they recognize now that seals do eat fish. They do. They do, and so do humans, and uh, especially Newfoundlanders. They like to get the fish and uh, be able to get it in an equitable way and uh, be able to store it, obviously, with our cost of living here in the province. That's very important that, that uh, people get access to fish in a timely manner and not take any risks while they're on the water. I appreciate the time, Graham. Stay in touch. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And uh, we'll get to the news here pretty much on time. And an emailer says... 
Just listening in, who's to say there'll be any significant increase? And I guess that's in reference to expanding from 39 to 90-ish days. One can only eat so much. You're right. But the issue is, not everyone who partakes simply does it to know, share some with their buddies, put some in their freezer, eat some fresh themselves. I know of a couple of fellas, and I won't say what community they fish out of because it'd be a dead giveaway. They're out there all the time. I mean, every day that is fit to be on the water, and not just one trip, several trips a day. Who knows what becomes of all that cod? I think they probably do their level best to make sure it's distributed around the community to folks who can't get out for one reason or another. But I think even if you add in whatever percentage of the participants in the recreation food fishery that fish as frequently as these two fellows that I know, I think there would inevitably be an increase. What the significance of would be, I'm not really sure. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Ted, you're there. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Ted, you're on the air. <coughs> Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, okay, uh, just wanted to follow up on... I was coming back from uh, Bay Roberts uh, Friday. I, I had the, the radio on, usually, and I picked up a, some of your conversation with, I think, was it the uh, uh, curator? At the rooms, a gentleman named Mark Ferguson, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I enjoyed that, okay? Yeah, he was great. I really enjoyed it, and some of the things you and I, I think, had spoken on that when I brought it up on a couple of days before that, right? And about the, uh, about the furniture. Um, last, when I had the last conversation, you asked me the date of the book that was published, right? And uh, anyway, it was 2002, okay? I just want to let you know that. And uh, it says published by the Canadian Museums, Museum of Civilization. I don't think, I'm not sure, I've been advised all on to that book, okay? It's, you know, I, I don't think it was on, like, on the shelves for sale. I don't think so, because there's no price tag, right? And uh, well, you asked me the date, and anyway, looking through, looking through, and I smiled at it, and I said, I'll go to college and uh, give Dave that, like, uh, uh, you know, because that's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a really good book, and I... Uh, uh, anyway, I was listening to uh, on the uh, the furniture because I told you, I told you I had, I purchased a couch, right? And I really like it, right? But in in the meantime, my my friend there, uh, uh, Wayne Wayne George, right? Uh, I was talking to Wayne Saturday, and he was going to be good enough to uh, take a picture of the couch and just uh, send it into you because I didn't I don't have emails or none of that stuff, right? I I didn't know I'd go about that so. If you see this old gentleman sitting on the couch, you know it's me, right? Uh, and uh, it's a, but it's a good one. So, and I, uh, did you say it was published by the Canadian Museum of History? Y yes, no, Canadian Museum of Civilization. That's what's written on the bo uh, bottom. Okay, I'm not even sure what that is. Okay, well, no, I don't. Well, I don't. Uh, first of all, I got to thank, uh, you know. Uh, my friend there, Walt Mercer, the auctioneer guy, you know, they, they pick up some stuff for me, right? And it says, uh, Mercury Series, History Division, paper uh, 51. Now, that's a little bit of, that should be a little bit of out for you. And on the top, like I said before, it's called The Dynamics of Outport Furniture Design, Adaptation, and Culture. And the thing that I like about the book is the cover, on the picture on the cover, right? And I uh, think I've identified it. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, 
and it's in the old, uh, I didn't realize at all, not only the furniture, but some of the uh, uh, frames of, uh, you know, mirror frames and stuff like that, right? They're, some of the Newfoundland stuff is very distinct. But I think this is the, uh, if you go through it, I think it's the picture on there where the uh, little road is going down to the harbor and all the schooners and stuff. It's, it's the Buren Peninsula, and I think it's called Pat's End, right? Uh, the reason the picture, uh, you know, the reason the picture uh, sort of impressed me, I don't I could get it, because, you know, when I, well, like, you know, a few months ago I told her I, start, I started the gallery here, the art gallery on Rose's Line, right? And uh, that's, that's coming along good, too. And I think sometimes people might have a hard time getting me on the phone, uh, but I, uh, Dave has my number. And I can assure you, anybody called you, like, at anything, or they want to talk to me or anything, no problem. Feel free to give them their number. And uh, my civic address, anybody's out, you know, uh, coming out from St. John's, uh, you know, uh, is 129 Roaches Line. I'm right next to the RV park, right? Now, I'm not on air to, uh, you know, I'm not a guy that looks for publicity. Most of my life, I love giving publicity to other people. But I can assure you, that that the conversation you had with with the curator not only impressed me, uh, Patty, but it also impressed a lot of people because I know, like, because you know, I go to the coffee shop early in the morning, sometimes the not sometimes the afternoon, right? And there was a lot of discussion over that, especially with some of the people, the boys that I know, or the older gentlemen there uh, from, particularly from Spaniards Bay. And uh, one of the points you uh, you made to me there, because I hadn't read it, I was just glancing through it, and when you mentioned uh, Mr. Batten there from uh, Baronid, yeah. Rupert, was it Rupert Batten? I think yeah. his name was right. Yeah. Uh, uh, you were really on top of it there, because apparently he was quite the, uh, where you take the old type uh, stuff, you know, and get it, what do you call it, upholstered and things like that, uh, you know. Well, and, refurbished, uh, or, yeah. Yeah, and... I think I said to you, uh, uh, when I say something, I mean it. I, if I take a, uh, an interest in something, you know, I like to, like I said sometimes, I like to do my homework, I like to get it. And I'm looking forward to getting over to, hopefully, uh, to the museum in uh, uh, Port Grave, I think it is down there. And uh, Because I think there's a piece of furniture down there by uh, Mr. Batten. And I think there's also another piece by a guy by the name of... Uh, uh, Joiner Daw, that'd be a nickname. I think it was Ned Daw, right? And there's also Ralph. And something else I've seen going through the book, I glanced through it, forgot to mention it. Um, a lady, uh, you mentioned her name, the curator eventually. It was Gail Collins, was it Gail? I think that was the name. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure. But like I said, uh, I think I've given you enough information to get curious to see if you can, you know, you might want to get that book yourself, because you seem to have a great uh, interest to me in anything to do, especially with the uh, Newfoundland and the, uh, the way things were done. They didn't have the tools and that, like, to work with like they got today. But I have a very good, in my opinion, a very good piece of furniture, and uh, I hope Wayne is listening, because usually I, I call on Gus French anything to do with sports, right? But I will definitely try to get a picture of that couch to you, and so you can have a look at it and judge for yourself. Yeah, please do. And so the focus with Mr. Ferguson from the rooms was 
for the most part, on Walter Peddle. So Walter was a curator as well, and, you know, they talked about the fact that uh, Walter and his wife Sally had eventually donated uh, some 39 pieces from their collection to the rooms. Some of them are still on display on the fourth floor. You know, so he was obviously very passionate about what he does and knows an awful lot about the issue itself. So I was glad to have him on, and we'll keep pursuing it a little bit just for a tidbit of information, Ted. So the Museum of Canadian Civilization is now been renamed the Canadian Museum of History, period. So they're the same thing. And that's on, I, I think it's Laurier Street. I've been there in, in Gatineau, Quebec. It's a fascinating place to visit. And insofar as my interest in, you know, Newfoundland craft, furniture, and otherwise, I think I'm just kind of naturally curious about that stuff anyway. So I find it all quite to be quite interesting. Yeah, and, you know, I and I don't like, like I said, don't, didn't want to, like, argue a show or be repetitious. But I was very, and I appreciate, like, any information like that. Uh, there's, and uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, quite a few uh, places now. I think there's some great stuff. When you get, you had the book, you know what I'm saying, uh, in Upper Island Cove, some of the stuff you'll see it and just say private collection, right? But there's some beautiful stuff out there. But before I go, I have a, a UC every day, um, uh, 11.30, I drop down to a, Friends of mine get an update on what's going on in the stocks and market and things like that, right? But uh, I, uh, I did lose last night. I put 50 bucks on San Francisco. <laughs> and you, I should have listened to you and went with my homes, okay? Well, I wonder what the total gamble... Sometimes we get a number from the United States itself, how much has been gambled on the uh, Super Bowl, and the number is enough to blow you away every year. And last last night, you know, some of the predicaments, uh, pardon me, the projections or predictions were that there would be more money gambled on last night's Super Bowl than any yeah. previous Super Bowl in history. Yeah. And some of the money, like some of the tickets at the 11th hour were like $9,000 for a ticket. If you wanted a private suite in the uh, arena itself, it was two point five million dollars <laughs> but I, I i say this your joke matter i i uh, did have i done pretty good uh, during the regular season on the football right okay hit or miss right and uh but uh i i uh, i i i i you know like my host was good I, I i watched the game i didn't watch the halftime show to be honest with you i didn't watch that i switched over to uh for 15 or 20 minutes to the uh, local station there, uh, Eastlink there, they had a pro program, and I really enjoyed it. It had to do with our with the uh, indigenous people and stuff like that, right? It's killing time. But I did watch all the game. A bit draggy this morning. And, uh, and once again, thank you. Uh, thank you for everything like that that you've done and any help. I will try to get that picture to you. And I'm going to see if I can get my money back tomorrow night on St. Louis. I think they're going to knock the heck of the lease there tomorrow night, okay? St. Louis looked good yesterday as they clobbered my Canadians, but anyway, that's it. Yeah, your, your Canadians, uh, yeah, your Canadians, they're not too bad. They're like, you know, they, they, it's like everything, right? You know, it's, I, I don't know. I can't see uh, I can't see any outstanding team to year. I don't follow as much as I, I used to, but uh, the good Lord willing, I'll... Uh, I'll try to. I might try to watch a bit of the uh, New Jersey uh, game tonight. You know, I might. I, I'm not sure. I don't follow as much as I used to, but I I uh, try to keep up to date on it a bit. And uh, anyway, when the playoffs comes, I'll, I'll give you a call and we'll make a prediction on who we think is going to go. Who's going to go? Uh, I don't think the Leafs can get out the first round. I'm going to say that right now. 
Well, I mean, they've got a problem in the nets. They've certainly got a problem on the back end. So they got another problem too. They got you know, Riley. You said it's going to be probably facing suspension. He's got a, a hearing or something today, right? When you have an in-person hearing, it's a minimum of five. So he's gone for a while. That was a look. What Kachuk did deserves a smack, but a cross-check to the shoulder or the head area is always going to land yourself in hot water, as opposed to just drop the gloves and take your chances, even though Kachuk would probably school Riley pretty quickly. Uh, it's just, you know, an emotional knee-jerk reaction that's going to cost them yeah. financially uh, and cost the team, because he's far and away the best defenseman. Don't and, lose. Yeah, oh, no, he's got the best, best they got. And, uh, and like, I'd like your... Uh, your, your Montreal team is good on time, okay? And uh, you right. know, like, uh, but don't rem- remember they uh, they last won the Cup of England ninety two ninety three, but the Leafs have been rebuilding since nineteen sixty seven. Now I'm eighty five. I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to see him win the cup. Well, I, I wonder will Matthews hit the 70 goal mark because he's something else to watch, man. That shot is second to none. I got to get to the break, Ted. I appreciate he the time. Come, he doesn't come through in the playoffs. No, right? he doesn't. Dawson Mercer got more points last year in the playoffs than matches. Dawson went into New York there one game and picked up three points. He's not doing as great years, neither is New Jersey. But we'll see what develops, okay? We'll see. Stay in touch, Ted. Thanks, Sitan. Thank you, Patty, very much. You're welcome, sir. Goodbye. All right, uh, let's get to the break. When we come back... Jamie is a professional fish harvester. He'd like to offer his comments on what the food fishery conversation sounds like. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Jamie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's it going? Top shelf this morning. How about you? No, I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty good. I've been uh, watching the news and listening to the Open Line show uh, regularly the past week and listening to the recreational fishery uh, comments and uh, and the uh, petition that's going around uh, but it doesn't seem to be many numbers or hard evidence of numbers and facts and what's coming ashore and what's allocated to the recreational fishery. I don't know if you've heard any numbers or anything that you could pass along. What number in particular are you looking for? Well uh, I know I attend a lot of meetings with DFO and uh, and represent some fish harvesters and stuff. Um, I fish in 3PS, uh, Placentia Bay, and uh, 3PS area takes in Fortune Bay as well. And I know for a fact there's 100 tons of codfish allocated for removals that are not recorded. So uh, 2,200 pounds in a ton, 100 tons, is 220,000 pounds of fish allocated that is not recorded by DFO. So I'm a professional fish harvester. I know when I leave the fishing grounds, i got to call the FRC. i got to do my DFO logbooks to record exact pounds of my cage. There's one fishery in the province that doesn't record any recordings. So I'm just wondering, is that 220,000 pounds that's there not being recorded is taken away from the commercial fishery for the rig fishery already. I don't think anybody knows an answer to that question, to be honest with you, Jamie. Now, since I mentioned logbooks or tags this morning, I've received a few digital swats about, you know, asking for people to have to do more to get what is their God-given right, all those types of emails I always get. But if we want to have numbers to questions like yours, then there's only one way to do it. 
is to have a formal reporting of how much fish is taken. Because until then, we're just going to be guessing and debating about hypotheticals and numbers fluctuating between 1% and 2% and all the rest of it. So I get it. When I go out, I don't necessarily want and love the idea of a logbook or a tag system, but at least then, for once and for all, we'd have an accurate count about how much fish is taken in that, whether it be 39 days or expanded recreational food fishery. Yeah, you're 100% right, Paddy. Uh in three fish now, we've been on a down twelve point in our stacks. Uh, we were at thirteen thousand tons a couple of years ago, and last year we were at thirteen hundred. And even at thirteen hundred tons, there was two hundred twenty thousand pounds set aside for fish that's not recorded. And like I said, the only fishery in the province that's not recorded is the food fishery. So there's two hundred twenty thousand pounds set aside already. That's facts. I can uh, probably get your paperwork on that, or but DFO released that uh, in meetings that there's a hundred tons set aside for non-recorded codfish. Well, you know what? That's the first time I ever heard that. Well, that's that's true. That's fact. There's a hundred. There's two hundred twenty thousand pounds, and that's only in two bays. There's Fortune Bay and Presentia Bay. So it's a hundred ten thousand pounds per bay. So if you take in St. Mary's Bay. Bonavista Bay, Trinity Bay, Notre Dame Bay, White Bay. Pretty sure if that's what's allocated in every bay, we're almost up to a million pounds for unrecorded fish. And now we're trying to get more. And and, and it's been taken away from the commercial fishery, 100 tons. Last year, 3PS could have been at 1,400 tons, but we were only at 1,300 tons because there's 100 tons set aside. For I'm going to have to have a look and see what I can find on that front, because that's the first I heard of that. Well, that's, that's true. I was in a meeting uh, about two, three weeks ago, and we're trying to get a little increase in our carbon tree pace, which I'm not sure the numbers we're going to get, but there is going to be a, definitely 100 tons taken off that number for the commercial fishery for uh, non-reported Catfish. So we're, we're losing 220,000 pounds, same as last year after a commercial quota. Just because it's non reported, there's no logbooks for it being reported. So I'm all for the food fishery. I think it's great. Uh, boat sales, trailer sales, gas stations, and even f- for families to get a meal of fish and get it on the water, I'm all for it. I've participated myself. But when it comes to taking from one, as in the commercial fishery, to give to another, this, uh, you're walking the fine line there when it comes to that, I think. Where do you think I might be able to get uh, put my hands on a document about that stuff, unreported uh, catch? You would have to reach out to White Hills DFO. So I just have to go to them. It's not somewhere. It's not published somewhere. Uh, it's probably not public information. Okay. But I, I've seen it with my own eyes, and that's why I'm on the call. Like, People are saying, oh, we want more fish, more fish. But how much more than 220,000 pounds do you want? Yeah, I, I, I don't even know how they come up with that number, right? Because if we're talking about something that's unreported, how does that, anybody even decide what would be set aside as an unreported total? It just well, sounds like we're chasing our tails here a little bit. Yeah, so but, uh, that is uh, 100% fact. There's 100 ton just for 3PAs. So how many tons is uh, allocated for 3L of St. John's, uh, St. Mary's Bay, Ponte Vista, Trinity? Is there 100 ton each bay? Is it 50 ton? 
But I know for a fact there's 100 tonnes set aside in free pace. And that's the only fishery that's no recordings involved is direct fishery. So the 100 tonne must be set aside for that. I suppose. I can't even think of what else would constitute an allowable uh, unreported catch. So I, 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 I'm not disputing what you're telling me. Uh, I'd love to have a look because I'd like to have a couple of answers to the questions. How they arrived at that number? Number two, is it the same allocation for the uh, various bays that you mentioned? And number three, are we going to actually move to a place where we can actually have firm data versus guesstimates? Because this is going to be an ongoing conversation, right? Because if we're talking about the way they've yeah. changed the science for, you know, catch, uh, catch rates anecdotally and then moving off to things like changing the dates with which we assess the, st the stability of the stock. So if this is true... And if it's as much as you say it is, in one, just one bay alone, then that's a lot of different layers of the conversation which are currently missing. There it is. And uh, I think like, a lot of it is politics, too. Of course. Like, you know, more people on the bandwagon get the votes going for the PCs. And I'm all for that, too. Like, if I was in the PCs, I'd probably do the same thing. <laughs> right? <laughs> if I'm trying to get votes. But... Like, don't take from the commercial fish harvesters to give to somebody else. Like, we're struggling as it is. Like, I can't, in in the summer months, I can't sell a pound of fish, a fillet, to, locally. Because you see on Facebook, fillet, skin the bone, $3 a pound. In unclassified, salt fish bins, uh, uh, fillet, skin the bone, $3 a pound. I can't sell fish for $3 a pound and make money. I'm after trying it. I can't do it. So our, our the commercial local market for commercial harvesters is pretty well gone in summer months. And yeah. we're trying to allocate more. People are lobbying for more fish. And I'm for, like, the tourist industry, like, I love it. Excellent industry. But when you, you're trying to wobble that line between commercial fishery and tourism to get fish, I don't know. It really strikes home for a lot of people in our industry. I'm going to do what I can this afternoon to come up with some of those numbers to the issue you brought forward this morning. I really appreciate you doing that, and I appreciate the call this morning, Jamie. Thanks a lot. Thanks, buddy. If I get any uh, information on paper ending, I'll email after you. I appreciate it. Stay in touch. Thanks, everyone. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. Right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, uh, Barry wants to talk about the same issue. Then we're going to talk housing, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the leader of the NDP. He's the member for St. John's Centre. That's Jim Din. Morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I just want to... Uh I talk about one a, a subject you've heard me talk about before housing, but I, I've been thinking an awful lot about the uh, the comfort hotel and the 21 million that's uh, that's allocated to it over the next three years. And uh, I'm more or less, especially in light of some of the conversations and that I've had in the last week or so about whether it would work and whether whether there, the money could have been spent in another way. And part of it is two things in terms of the supports and and. and to maybe a more permanent solution. 
And I'll start with wraparound sports. You've probably heard me talk about that uh, on numerous occasions as to uh, as to what that would look like. And that's one of the key questions as to how this when they when they we heard I heard the, the talk about staffing, what that's going to look like. I know that in the community, I've been on a number of uh, 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 regarding a number of people who are uh, put into uh, housing outside uh, outside of this. What I would uh, I would I would cause me concern as to what wraparound supports look like, and it's causing significant problems for the people who are who are uh, who are in need of them, and for the uh, for neighbors as well. Um, you know, so uh, it, it, my idea of wraparound is more more or less having a uh, maybe a place uh, similar to Indwell and in, in mainland, similar to other places, similar to even Stella Circle. That would have staff there uh, and, and train staff throughout most day and staff at night uh, as well. But I, I guess I'm just concerned that in the end, if we're if uh, if we're putting if if people are there without the adequate supports, then we really haven't uh, resolved the issue. Uh, I have visited and, and talked to people with other uh, with, with models that I think that rely on also uh, having trained personnel and also peer support that seem to work quite well. I'm concerned that if we're putting people in there uh, that do not, uh, that are needed those supports, then have we resolved the problem? And if we're not putting uh, people in there uh, who uh, maybe... Uh, maybe who don't require them, and then have we addressed the issue? Uh, I visited Tent City, and there are still people there uh, who are uh, looking for something other than the hotel. Uh, they're looking for, as one gentleman said to me, look, I would like to have a place that I can call my own, I can cook my own meals, if nothing else. And that 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 seems to be such a, a simple, uh, a simple, uh, simple request. So harm reduction. Is, is certainly the uh, you know, and I've heard from people in the harm reduction community. They they are a little bit concerned that this model may not work the way the way the government is touting it. In light of the in light of I think was uh, the federal housing advocate Marie Jose Hull, uh, she again cautioned about you know the, that this is not a permanent solution. And I guess that brings me to the other part. Uh, Just before we move on, Jim. Yep. Before we move on, are we talking about the wraparounds that need to be in place at the Comfort Inn specifically? I would say, well, that's what I'm trying to find out. Who is going? uh, That's what I would like to know exactly. I've heard that there's going to be staff there, but who are they and how many? That's the first thing. If we're going to have about 140 rooms, we I've had people who are like uh, they. Some of, the, some of the issues I'm dealing with in the community, and this is what's got me concerned, is that you've got people, for example, who are in a housing situation, and maybe someone checks in with them uh, once a week or once a month, but that's not that's not sufficient for them in, in some cases to keep them housed and also to make sure that the people in the neighborhood are also able to enjoy the quiet enjoyment of their, their home. So, but the key thing is about making sure that people remain housed. So that's the, uh, the as to whether... If whether, for example, are there going to be what services are going to be provided? There's concern that it's on the outskirts of the city about having access to services downtown. So uh, I, I'm I'm just hoping, uh, you know, I, I do hope that there, there there there's an actual plan to other than uh, to have uh, nine to five services and then for the rest of the time people are on their own, uh, especially if, uh, if people uh, you know there are. 
have multiple exceptionalities, multiple complexities as to how that's going to be resolved. I just know the issues, Patty, that I that come across my desk, and we're and we're trying to find a, a solution to them, and also to the people who are uh, who might have depending addictions, mental health issues. What services are going to be provided so that they can stay housed out where they are? So that would be like I guess it's the discussion of what wraparound services look like. That's the first piece. Yeah, and I mean, when I asked the minister, well, for a couple of things, we don't really know how this is going to work anyway. No. And here we are, they're going to start accepting uh, people next month. Yep. We don't know what the eligibility vetting criteria looks like, who's actually going to be eligible to take it on. We, I did ask the minister directly about the staffing issues regarding wraparound services, and basically inside the work of physical health, one professional, one doctor, uh, mental health, one healthcare professional, uh, one social worker. So it sounds like fairly minimal staffing anyway when we talk about 140 rooms. So there's a lot left to be fully understood about how this is going to work, even when it thinks about oversight and monitoring and security, what have you. If it's not vastly different than it is in an emergency shelter, because I, at this point, without the questions being fully answered, it could indeed turn into an emergency shelter, but everyone has their own room and a key. So, and, and you hit the nail on the head. If this is, it's interesting. You made it, it, it surface, If it's not vastly different than an emergency uh, shelter, have we accomplished anything? Uh, have we moved forward? And I, and I and I think that's the other part of it that's. Uh, that bothers me, I guess. So for 21 million, I think in many ways, you know, whether you could have repurposed a government building uh, or you could have even uh, made an offer to buy the building and, and, and staff it adequately. Um, or even uh, like you know, it's interesting. We visited uh, my, my uh, researcher, my our researcher, and I visited HomeWorks here in town, and they they're up on Elyria Avenue. They specialize in modular homes. Uh, but just even even the, even the point of view of even if you and we there's government land. You heard me talk about this in in the center of my, uh, of my district. That even if you have uh, homes here that uh, that would uh, appeal to all sorts of people, but at the same time you could put uh, a, a decent homes and support in place for those who need it and you could have uh, there's an affordability piece then for people who wish to own get into the home market but I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of like for 21 million to lease it and minimal staffing it, that's you know as you're right I, I i share the same concern if it's minimal staffing then have we have we moved ahead and and help and are, are we helping people move towards that uh, that independent uh, uh and living that they that they, they obviously they desire and just for clarification i'm not suggesting that's the road we're going to travel no because if this can work, and if there's a not only a firm commitment yeah. to wraparound services, but also in the whole world of transitioning, so back into the ability to have your own place, whether it be back into the workforce or ongoing treatment for your mental health concerns and or your addictions, and the employment stabilization plan, all those types of things, because it can't just simply be, you know, like a turnstile. And people are there, then they leave, then they come back, and then they leave, and we haven't done anything to try to help them get back onto their own uh, solid footing, then it's not going to really do a whole, whole lot other than get people in and out of the elements. Now, again, I will hold off on any, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down or any other questions or concerns until we actually see what the firm policies look like. But I can only hope, like the rest of the folks listening to the program, 
I can only hope it works, not just for the societal issues, but even if you just incorporate the financial issues and implications. So let's see where we go, but we'll keep asking the questions until we can get some really firm, carefully defined answers. And that's what I'll be looking for as well. I, I, and that's the key thing here is to what is the overall plan and uh, in terms of uh, you know a, a, a addressing, a, a having a plan for people to move into a place where they can be stable. And I'll make no mistake, Patty, at some point, some people are going to be totally independent on their own, but others may always need some level of support. And I think in many ways, the key thing to look at that, that the, the alternative, whether, you know, uh, it, uh, whether it's the use of the medical system, the justice system is a lot more a lot more expensive. So in many ways, this is a lot uh, provides a much safer, much uh, uh, more what uh, community oriented uh, approach. If we can if we can move people towards that uh, that uh, transition them from street to uh, to the. Um, to permanent housing, but in the end, too, I think the uh, the uh, the, the Marie Jose hold. You really need to make sure that we're, we've got the people who are with the lived experience that they're in on this, so that they they direct it. I guess it was the saying, nothing without without nothing about us without us. And I that's it's great for me to talk about it. Good for you to talk about it. But I think in many ways, it's the people who are living with homelessness are also got to be the ones that got to have some uh, say as to uh, uh, or. If are facing being unhoused that are uh, that have to have some say. I can tell you, seniors alone are lately uh, have been uh, speaking to me, and I met. They're 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 of being uh, unhoused because of the increase in rent. So you know, I think there's multiple approaches. But let's talk. Make sure we we got the key people, the ones who are going to be get, benefiting from the services that they're part of that conversation. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Uh, yeah, okay, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Barry, you're next to talk about the food fishery. Don't go away. This is Open Line on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. No problem. There's a lot of uh, conversation about uh, the food fishery. And uh, I just... Uh, <coughs> sorry, but... I just on a, <clears throat> a little bit of estimating. I just looked at <clears throat> how many people takes part in the food fishery. Right? I <clears throat> somebody in my throat this morning, <clears throat> and uh, I estimated if, if fifty thousand people take part in the food fishery, and the fish. 30 after 39 days and they catch their quarter each day uh, that would be the same amount of fish as every Arpsy will take one fish a year. So millions because the harp seal are taking there's millions of them. 7.5 million harp seals yeah. one fish a year 50,000 people 30 days Taking 150 fish each person times 50,000, 7.5 million. So 50,000 50, uh, people participate, people. and they take 150 fish each. 150 fish each times 30. Oh, no, 150, yeah, times 30, yeah. That's even more than the number of harp seals. Well, there you go. Why so much interest in 
uh, trying to get numbers and stuff on the rec- recreational or food fishery and ignore the seal population. Oh, I don't think anyone should ignore the seal population. No, I don't think either, but, but it seems like all the emphasis is put on people going out and getting a few fish for the put on their table, few to sot for the winter. There's a lot of emphasis put on that, but not enough on the seal population. And we just had whatever a seal summit and means. It, if you double the number of people, well, 50,000, that's around 10% of the population. If you, if you don't, it'd only be seal taking two fish a year. Yeah, I think we have a pretty good idea about just how much cod and other species that the seals do eat. What we don't know is what the real extraction numbers are for the recreational food fishery. Now, the only reason I think that that would be important to have a better understanding of it is because now all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, year over year, there's debates about how long it should be, you know, 39 days or 50 days or 90 days and what the quota should be and how it's enforced and all the rest of it. Because if we don't have any real numbers, we're just taking wild stabs at it. You know, it's hard to have a real debate when we don't have any real numbers to consider. That's, That's, I think, the point people make. With regards to the number of days... I don't want any more fish than I catch us now. I take part in the food fishery. I don't want any more fish. I just want the freedom to get it when I want to get it. I get that because, unfortunately, people make bad decisions. And some of those bad decisions are going out when you have time, but the weather's not great. And I, I, know. I, mean, I see it all the time. I know. I mean, and, we and were... And a lot of people like me, and then you take into, uh, take into consideration some of those communities don't have a good arbor. I put out my boat... And as soon as I get enough fish what I want, the boat comes ashore. Because you can leave a boat in the water, you can end up uh, losing the boat, having damage. And even with Igor, at that time, with all the, all the rain that we had, there was boats swamped with their engines down the water and everything. So it should be the person's choice if he wants to stay out for the full season. I don't want to. A lot of people like me. I know people... That same thing, when they get their fish, up comes the boat. Yeah. It, it, the, the point people make about, you know, a little bit more latitude to go out when it's safe, and if that means expand the days, for instance, if the FO was willing to say, okay, so here's the 39 days again for the recreational food fisher here in the province, and if in the first batch of weekends there are two days that have been considered unsafe, then add two days. You know, even if there was some flexibility as opposed to the way we currently structure it. For the last number of years, the, the September, week in September, there's nothing cut. Very little cut. That don't, because two things. Weather is one thing. Yeah. And uh, I don't know about the rest of the problems, but around there in Bonavista Bay, uh, once the August comes, gets to a... Well, not very late in August. The fish gets small. It's not worth going out for. We get the little big fish on the first of it, and that's it then. That's it. So that's the... No, it might not be like that all around the island. I don't know. Oh, most of it. I mean, I've personally, I've never been out in the fall. No, no. And I don't even keep my boat in the water. The boat in, in August month, up, up she comes. I think that's pretty common. Labor Day weekend, boats coming out of the water. For, that's yeah. a lot of folks. Unless I'd rather, you, uh, I'd rather from the, cut that, that week off and, and, and end it Labor Day. Labor Day weekend. 
every day until every day weekend. I'd rather have that than the way they got it now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I appreciate you making time for the show, Barry. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank you very much. Take good care. Okay. All bye. right. Bye-bye. All right. Final word this morning. Barry Likely goes to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. I'm just hoping to get some advice from you. So in September, my mom ended up having my two nieces come and live with her. Um, originally, they were in Alberta, but my brother has succumbed to drugs. He's on the streets with a severe addiction. So they were sent back to live with their mom. They lived with their mom for about a year and a half, and their mom also is a severe drug addict. She ended up getting evicted from her apartment, so she dropped her three girls off with her mother, who only had a one-bedroom apartment at this time. So they stay there with her for four months, and then the two younger girls begged my mom to take them in because they were having to take turns sharing a bedroom. So because, well, there was no bedroom. It's actually a laundry room. They were taking turns sharing a bedroom, and they weren't comfortable. So my mom agreed to take them in, but my mom is a senior. She's on her old age pension. So um, the other grandmother was in contact with CYFS to try to get support for the girls. And my mom did as well. We've been in talks since September, trying to get support for the girls with nothing being done. And I don't know where to turn. Like I've contacted the children's youth advocate worker and I keep getting the same turnaround. Like just be patient. Um, first it was that they needed their mom's signature on the paper. They get a kinship program going. And so I contacted their mom because they also need severe dental work. So one girl was taken to the hospital with abscesses on her gums and they said to get them in right away to see a dentist. So we did that and, um, she needed to get dental work done. My mom just doesn't have the money, like on an old age pension with everything increased. It's a struggle to take care of two teenage girls as it is. I'm just wondering if you have any advice of where I could turn next because right now it's a struggle. Where to go. So is your mom wanting and willing to keep it for starters, just because there was a lot of different moving parts there. How many children are living with your mom? My mom only has those two girls. My mom is almost, well, 78 years old. So she now has the 14 and 15 year old with her. Hmm. Like I've they like CYFS told me that there's nothing they can do because it was volunteer for her to take them in. That's right. Yep. But we explained like, and so then they told me that if I could get the mom's signature, then they could start a kinsmanship program. I got in contact with their mother and I said, you know, like things need to be done. And she said, well, I'll go up and sign the paper, but I need money to get up there and I need to get a couple things done. So I said, how much money do you need? Because at the point at this time, I'm giving my mom two hundred dollars every two weeks to help her pay for stuff. So she said she needed a thousand dollars. I told her that I couldn't afford to give her a thousand dollars. That I'm helping support her kids at this time. So she said, if you give me five hundred dollars, I can get up. I can get someone to drive me back and forth, and I want to go see the girls to get them a birthday gift and stuff because she hasn't seen them since, well, barely since May. So I said, okay. So I talked to the worker and I explained to her that she asked me for $500. I'm willing to give it to her so she can get up and get the paper signed. I said, is there anything going to come of that? I said, because I don't want to do this if it's going to be anything come of it. She said, absolutely not. As long as we get her signature, everything is good. 
I give her the money, get her up. She gets a sick paper signed. My mom goes in to get the paper signed. And then, again, it's not going through because they consider it a bribe. I said, my mom had nothing to do with it. I'm like, I'm the one who's paying right now, and I can't afford to keep paying because my hours have been cut. And I'm like, and mom's struggling. I, it sounds like a terrible situation. An exact pot of money you could have access to off the top of my head, I really don't know. But I know someone who does and can probably answer this question. I'm going to try to recreate uh, the conversation with a friend of mine who is pretty good at navigating uh, provincial support monies. And if I can figure anything out, I have your number or Fonz has your number. If we can get any advice either from a listener or I can get advice from my friend who helps navigate the provincial monies, I'll call you back. Because we already and we've already yep. done the route for um, the child tax credit, we've sub- submitted the application. Unfortunately, there's someone else is already getting the money, and there's 16 other applications that have been put in, as we were told. So we still have haven't been able to get that either. So. Uh, let me I'm, see if I'm I can just, figure like, it out. Frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand entirely. Let me see if I can figure something out on your behalf. Okay, great. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. Thank thank you. Thanks. Uh, that's a tricky piece of business because off the top of my head, I don't know where that pot of money exists. Anyway, good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.